He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, October 2, 2021. October 2, how do you do? This is our episode 64 titled Colorado Insurrectionists. We expose who is culpable with Quentin Young, Colorado Newsline boss, editor in chief, and a hell of a columnist. What a great writer! as is Ankush Kardori. This guy is big-time national, writing about Trump's insurrection, which is the topic today with the Colorado twist. Of course, we focus on Colorado, where Peter Boyle still holds forth on 710KNUS. Unlike back in mid-November when it really mattered, and he had Joe Oltman on to start the big lie that could ruin America. Peter Boyles has now seen the light. He also has seen lawsuits coming against the people who perpetrated the big lie, like Joe Oltman, like Michelle Malkin. And Peter Boyles has gotten out of the way. And now he makes some candid admissions. Remember when I got terminated? I do, November 16, 2019. I was castigating Donald Trump when my mic was cut. Now Peter Boyles acknowledges the obvious at 710 KNUS when he says this on his own show. It's the litmus test to be a talk radio host. You can't, oh, yeah. you can't be a talk show host, particularly on this radio station, without you know taking the, the big lie and saying that Donald Trump really did win, but winky, winky. Yeah, no kidding. What happens if somebody dares tell the truth? Who legitimately wants to go in the middle of this? And certainly no one with any brains. No, it'd be nice if somebody would just, I don't know. I just wish, I wish you'd have somebody who'd just call it like it is and just say, they, well, they do, you know, they do. And then they're believe- done. Well, thanks for the compliment. I really don't want to be a part of an organization like that where you have to have no brains to advance the big lie, which brings us to Randy Corcoran, also known as the man with the pompadour. And he showed up in my old haunts, honestly, the fourth floor of Denver District Court, city and county building. I love that place. Back in the 80s and 90s, that's where I did my thing as a prosecutor. But this past week, Randy Corcoran was there for a civil matter in front of Judge Shelley Gilman, veteran Denver District Court judge, public defender before that. And he came there because nine cops put their trust in Corcoran and that law firm saying, hey, you don't have to get fired for not taking the vaccine. We'll file a lawsuit. We're going to win. At least I only file a lawsuit when I think I'm going to win. But Corcoran He took on all these clients, and he showed up in courtroom 424. Love that building. 
grand ceilings, and somehow there was a camera in the courtroom. At first, Shelley Gilman called out the obvious subject matter jurisdictions. It's sort of like if you were going to do a job on a house, you got to get a permit first. Before you can bring a lawsuit, you have to exhaust your administrative remedies. Law School 101, and when it was pointed out by the city attorney, and I'll play more of this at the very end of the show, and more sound for me and Boyles and Corcoran during the outro after you hear from my troubadour with his great song called Slow Down. And I do need to slow down, but this gets me worked up at what I saw on YouTube, Randy Corcoran and Court. Hey, it starts out like this. You know, the case... I'm sorry, Your Honor. I'm actually a little lightheaded. And then it gets worse. Let's hear that again. What's the problem, Randy Corcoran? I'm actually a little lightheaded. A little lightheaded? Oh, my. Gosh. And then you get to the part where the dog ate his homework. He's got a desk full of everything imaginable. I'll post this on Twitter. And he can't find what he wanted to say to the judge. And he's fumbling and he's bumbling. And he gives the excuse, I hope you can hear this, it's sort of low. Because he says it while he's talking to another attorney who's sitting there trying to find some paper the corporal has lost. And if you listen closely, it isn't the dog ate my homework, it was... Uh, the bucket in my car flipped and all my files got confused. I'd almost feel sorry for him if I liked him in the least. But if you remember when I lost my job, he created some conspiracy theory that I was wearing a great blue suit, the same one I had on with Brian Stelter. And clearly I had set up my own firing with Brian Stelter of CNN. And don't you know those guys do those sorts of things together? I'm going to play that sound toward the end of the show. On the outro, you got to listen to Dave Gunders. You got to listen to Ankush Kardori. But Quentin Young, he's special. He comes up right now. He's with Colorado Newsline. The stakes are high. I've got a suspicion Donald Trump's running again. The Dems aren't doing that great. Joe Biden, come on, man. The door is open. We want to slam the door with the truth. The truth is Donald Trump is terrible for America. Do we want to be an autocracy? Is this fascism? It's not good. I call it Trumpism. Quentin Young talks about it with me right now. Thanks for listening. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) 
Now, part of that was serious and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday. And if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. Hello. Hi, Quentin Young. Hey, Craig. How's it going? Good. Now that I'm talking to you, love your writing. Thanks for doing the show. Oh, it's a thrill. It's an honor, Craig. I, I appreciate being invited invited on to talk with you. Tell everybody about your background. Well, um, I've been in Colorado since 1995 and almost as long, not quite that long. I've been um, a journalist, um, all on the front range, um, started in Greenwood Village at the Villager newspaper, then went on to the uh, papers that um, then were owned by the Lehman family, Lafayette News, Longmont Times Call, and from there went on to the Boulder Daily Camera. I was the opinion page editor there for a while. I was a features editor. And then uh, last year came on and started with Colorado Newsline, uh, which is part of the state's newsroom out, um, network of outlets. And we launched in July of last year. Tell us about Colorado Newsline. We are a nonprofit. We're a news site that focuses on politics and policy and other stories of statewide interest. Um, usually everything we cover has some um, you know, connection to um, policy and statewide policy. Uh, we're, we're a small team. We have four people on staff right now, and we have one regular uh, columnist. Trish Zornio, who people might remember from her um, run for the Senate. Um, And our newsroom um, is nonpartisan, and we, you know, follow uh, the mainstream kind of expectations of um, journalistic ethics and standards. Um, And then me as the editor, I uh, kind of have a dual role. I oversee the newsroom, uh, but then I also write uh, commentary. And You don't uh, just write. I mean, you emote. You let it go. You are gifted, Quentin. That's why I'm so glad to have you on the show. That's very kind of you to say. And coming from you, that's that's, uh, high praise. I when 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 I saw you uh, reach out to me, I was I really was thrilled because, um, you know, like I mentioned, I've lived in Denver for, uh, let's see, since 99, but I was commuting up to the Lafayette News, the Times Call, and I used to listen to you, um, it, it would have been on my commute back, I guess, because you were in the afternoon with right. Capless, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've, I've quite familiar with your work in media and uh you even uh, got here in 95 you got to see me run against bill ritter i guess you were at the villager then not far away if i could have gotten people in cherry hills village and greenwood village to vote i might have (laughs) won yeah yeah well uh yeah i i i can't recall if i uh uh 
would have covered anything you did uh, back then. But no, I certainly, it was a Denver race, so why would Greenwood Village get involved? Yeah, yeah, probably not. But uh, I'm, I'm quite familiar with um, you know your work from back then, and also uh, have read you in the Sun um, more uh, more recently. Thank so, you. Um, it's it's a thrill to be able to talk with you. Can you say great things about the Colorado Sun? Larry Rickman might be listening. Uh, I've I've always said great things about the Colorado Sun. I was uh, I thought it was terrific to see them go out and start the Sun several years ago. I'm a contributor. I'm a supporter of the Sun. Uh, I think they do some fantastic work. I consider them. You know, Newsline kind of considers the Sun. Um, a competitor, but on the other hand, we, I have the utmost respect for Larry and Dana and all the journalists they have over there. Um, in fact, uh, I mentioned Trish Zornio. She just started a column at, at the Sun too. So she's writing for the Sun and Colorado Newsline. So, um, I noticed yeah, I, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love what they do. Over and, there. and I like that attitude, and I know Larry has, which is, you know, let's support all good journalism. Let's support everybody who's trying to do it right and make a difference. And I like Colorado Newsline, but to me the best part, I like Chase Woodruff, but it's your columns, man. And the one you just wrote, I, I mean— just the title alone gets uh, my juices going. Colorado's top 10 most dangerous election deniers subhead. Their objective is to ensure Coloradans never again trust election results. And you name names. You do a top 10 list. I love that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> do you know Corey Hutchins? He covers media in Colorado. Of course. He, 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 he tweeted something about it oh has he that's great yeah uh cory cory um i think does some important work in colorado and covering the media and uh you know and and he is not afraid to you know um hold media outlets and and figures uh hold their feet to the fire which is a great thing i think that needs to be done um but he, he tweeted something about the top 10 lists to the effect that it had uh, an alt-weekly vibe, which I I don't know if it, if it was a compliment or not, but I guess it does when you when you have a top ten list, uh, it's uh, might have uh, some kind of uh, characteristics that are out of the ordinary compared to traditional news opinion writing. But I thought it was important to name names. And, you know, I say that in the piece. I think we, it, it, when you're talking about election denial, when you're talking about threats to American democracy, I think it's important for people to know the individuals who are behind those efforts. And, you know, so that's important on one hand. On the other hand, it's a little arbitrary. And I, I, did struggle with that a little bit. It's I, way I arbitrary. That's the beauty of it, because it's like a sports list. People can argue about it, but the names, I did it with my wife, because she follows this. Trish, I said, uh, my guest, Quentin Young, wrote a great piece. He names the top 10 Colorado people who are involved, and I would say culpable in this Trump insurrection, 
and uh, she guessed about seven of them. I think oh, I yeah. got about eight. I, I would quibble. You don't put Jenna Ellis in the top ten? Well, again, I, I allow that this is not, uh, you know, I stand by the names that are in there. The order, I, I am open to uh, revision. Jenna Ellis, I didn't put in the top 10 because I was trying to focus on people who, in my view, most specifically are having influence in Colorado. Their their work or their efforts in terms of election denial are mostly Colorado-centric. They are here they're present in the state. Their focus is on elections in Colorado, whereas Jenna Ellis might be a Coloradan who is influential in terms of her election denial nationally. Her day-to-day work doesn't really focus on elections in well, Colorado. Well, can we agree oh. on this, Quentin, that the crime was committed early, planting the seed, stop this deal. And anybody who enabled Jenna Ellis to come on their Colorado radio and pitch that swill, I think they're culpable too. And I called it out at the time as loud as I could, even warning former friends of mine, don't go with this big lie. It's going to be problematic. Sure enough, it led to January 6th. And so I think Jenna Ellis is culpable, not just for her attorney work, but all the radio appearances stirring it up with her bullcrap. Absolutely. Uh, She helped plant the seeds for the big lie that the people who who did take up those efforts in Colorado were uh, inspired by. I, I, w- I remember reading your column where you mentioned, you know, your previous interactions with, with Jenna. Right. And how, you know, she was previously maybe a critic of Trump, but then like a lot of people uh, in the Republican Party ended up becoming kind of a true believer. And I, I thought, and, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you mentioned something about the maybe how that might implicate her uh, licensed practice law. So far she's skated, and I'm not going to be the one to grieve her, but I don't like it. I think it's disgraceful. I did write a powerful column way back when against her, but I think she should be in the top 10. So there, Quentin, you only gave her an honorable mention. Yeah, well, she's in there. I think she definitely deserves a place in there. Um, you, you know, I'll tell you something that's interesting. You know what she did this week? She was she was amplifying Christy Nome, apparently having an affair with Corey Lewandowski. That's the reports. But you know, right. Jenna's private life. Wow, the things people could say or back at her, and she just trolls on Twitter. You're on Twitter. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um. I, I think one thing that this – well, first of all, doing a list like this, it did have the effect, which I think is uh, salutary. It started a, a conversation, um, not just among people who might agree with my take on it, but um, on the right too, um, including from Ash Epp, who is um, number five on the list and who, you know – Now, I admit, I did not have Ash Epp on my bingo card. You spell Ash, A-S-H-E, Epp, E-P-P. Is that a boy or a girl? What is that? 
Okay, so Ash F is a co-founder. I've seen her variously described as a co-founder or a founder. Uh, so I, I, I honestly am not exactly sure, but of a group called U.S. Election Integrity Plan. U.S. Inte- U.S. Election Integrity Plan is a Colorado-based group that started in the wake of the November 3rd election. And they've become, you know, maybe the, you know, by their own description, the leading uh, organization uh, devoted to, you know, every in their bullshit, view, every bullshit conspiracy theory imaginable that might leap out of the head of Donald Trump or one of his fellow election riggers. He says the election was rigged. He is the guy who tries to rig elections. He is the guy who cheats to win club championships. How can people not figure this out? Well, I think I think uh, <laughs> on the right they don't want to figure it out. I think there is. Uh, this is something that I've really tried to ponder over: how much among people who propagate the big lie who say the election was stolen how much do they actually believe it and how much is it just a pretext to um do the work to make sure trump gets elected in 2024 because they want lower taxes and they hate joe biden they want to own the libs but let's go back to your list because Number one will surprise a lot of people. It surprised me. But number two, and he deserves to be way up there because I have this theory and I put it out there on my podcast and I put it in my column that the big lie grew out of the lie that started on a conservative daily podcast the Tuesday after the election when Joe Altman, a broadcaster wannabe, announced that he knew this guy named Eric who was going to fix the election And sure enough, that Tuesday night, he was the featured guest of Randy Corcoran at his Arapahoe County Tea Party meeting, complete with exhibits. The next Saturday morning, Randy Corcoran, who got my spot when I was booted because I couldn't take this Trump crap, and I voiced my opinion. Anyway, he has on Joe Altman, who has some connection to KNUS, through George Brockler, who I queried about it last week, last episode. Tune in for that. Bottom line, Joe Altman pitched this crap uncontested by Peter Boyles, who amplified it on the following Monday and Tuesday. Of course, he went to Michelle Malkin uh, after Corcoran, and he made the rounds. Now, Boyles is scared he's going to be sued, and he should be, because he amplified Altman and it said, welcome back home, and you're great, and way to go, until he realized that, that Dominion and Coomer were going to start suing people. And amazingly, mm. they haven't sued Salem, Colorado yet, but they sued Malkin, they sued just a bunch of Newsmax and some big entities, one of which has settled. I'm going to calm down, but I don't know if you know that theory of mine, Quentin, and do you agree that the big lie, it's its like a lot of big rivers in America, they, they start uh, in Colorado? Absolutely. I think, I think there is so much to that. 
the Dominion lie started with Joe Altman. He's from Douglas County. And that has become this, you know, I, I think the, the big lie started in the White House. I mean, the big lie Correct. started with Trump. But no, and, and they said, OK, if we're going to have a claim of rigging, we need a scapegoat and we need have a company that has tentacles in a lot of different states. And it would be good if some people could research anybody connected, go on Facebook, see if they have some anti-Trump stuff. They could go on my Facebook page and find that. They turned Eric Coomer into an Antifa monster because he expressed his satisfaction with Trump, and they mm-hmm. found their perfect scapegoat. And I agree that it was hatched in the White House. And if you don't think Altman was connected, I believe Seth Abramson, who's on Twitter, a lawyer, former federal public defender, who's published yeah. pictures of Altman in the Willard Hotel where all of this was being coordinated on January 5 and January 6. Am I right? Do you believe all that, yeah. Quentin? Yeah, I, 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 I do believe that. And, um, you know, Altman has connections that just radiate out all over the place to all the figures that we've already mentioned. And the the crazy thing about Altman, and this, and this is made absolutely clear in, you know the the filings in the in the Coomer suit. There is nothing to his claims. He doesn't. He can't tell you when this phone call that he alleges he infiltrated uh, the phone call where uh, somebody named Eric, which he later determined was Eric Coomer, was on. The the call was supposed to have something like a couple dozen people on it. He hasn't been able to identify. Anybody else who could corroborate that this call even occurred, he can't, uh, you know, substantiate that the Eric he claims was on this this mystery call was was Eric Coomer. But people like Michelle Malkin, people like uh, outlets like OAN and other like Peter na- Boyle, who had him and, on twice and, in a row, if a guy says. Hey, you know how this happened? I infiltrated an Antifa call, and I heard this dude named Eric. And I put a, a decent right. questioner would say, "Wait, let's back up a little. Now, how do you infiltrate an Antifa call? Let's start there. Give us something." But nobody asked right. that question because they wanted this guy to to make news on their show. Right. And, and, and so you ask yourself, why, why is Joe Altman doing this himself? And, and I, you know, I can't get into his head, but um, he has maybe some financial interest in, in drawing, you know, uh, spectacular attention to himself. Maybe he likes the fame. He's, he's being connected to national political figures. I don't know, but what, what's, what's just astonishing to me is when you compare the how empty his claims are to how they've blown up and become the one of the central narratives in in the big lie and in turn such an enormous threat to democracy in America it's just it's just astonishing to me and the, and the other thing about Joel you know can, can i just tell people because i reference boyles and corpin and i had that yeah. sound on my last show where i exposed joe altman amplifying things through those two shows where he was welcomed and i want yeah. people to listen to that 
And now Peter Boyle says, you know what? You can't be a talk show host in Denver unless you back the big lie because he's getting pushed back. But he never goes to the root of it. He's never once come on and said, you know, that Joe Altman was full of crap. And he came on my show and he tried to spin it. And he should be calling out Joe Altman the way you and I are. But he's not going to do it. And the other guy you got to call out is Donald Trump because this all came right from the top, but he won't do that either because he's on Denver Trump Radio where you can't do that sort of thing. And yeah. uh, I'm glad I got that off my chest. Back to you, because we're not <laughs> done talking about Joe Altman. Well, uh, here's something else I'll say about Joe Altman is that unlike some other big live proponents, you know, people on my list and, and otherwise, uh, who might in fact, think they're acting in good faith. Joe Altman does not act in good faith. And beyond that, Joe Altman, you know, he just just flagrantly will make references to violence. He's a dangerous individual in terms of threatening American democracy, but he's dangerous physically. He, uh, you know, you, you can see on um, uh, just his last uh, conservative daily podcast uh, after the Maricopa County, you know, sham audit results were released, made some reference to like, you know, I don't want to call for violence, but this is a war. The message being, you know, essentially this is a call for violence and, you know, uh, He's he's made physical threats to other journalists. There's a fantastic reporter, Heidi Beetle at the Colorado Springs Indy. He's done love her. Uh, probably she's probably done some of the most in-depth, uh, consistent reporting on Joe Altman and and big lie, you know, implications in Colorado. He's gone after her viciously, and it's disgusting. And can I um, say this that, about Heidi Beetle? Because I yeah. think she posts. Uh, I mean, there are probably causes where she and I totally disagree, but on this issue, she's a must-follow. Heidi Beetle. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, follow her on Twitter if you're interested in any of this because um, she's she's paid uh, very close attention. And, you know, she, she can be uh, occasionally... Um, tendentious but she she you know you don't there's no question where she stands on the issue but on the other hand she uh reports what she reports you can trust is true and factual and she uh, goes she goes to places she reports and, and that's right. that's a cool thing and right, it's good right. you give her a shout out in your column everybody should go to this column the top 10 list Colorado's top 10 most dangerous election deniers by Quentin Young. Joe Altman, let's not let him get away. You suggest maybe this is about money, that conservative daily podcast. I bet they have great advertising. And FEC, I hear about meetings with many hundreds of people at Bandemir. Maybe the Bandemirs are backing them. You got Tig Tigan involved. I mean, is it a money-making machine? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And I'm less concerned with um, the motivations of somebody like Joe Altman than the malign effect that his activities, whatever they're doing for him, uh, have on the democracy that I care about and, and other people care about. And I think, 
you know, so like, what do you, what is what do Coloradans do about uh, a Joe Altman? Um, I don't have, you know, a, a clear idea about that, but I will say that uh, certainly what it takes is people, especially in the Republican Party, pushing back, and that's what you're not seeing. Correct, and that's why I bring up Boyles. He won't bring up Altman. He's scared. Well, I mean, you know, you I, I listened to you talk to George Brockler last week, and 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 George Brockler, he's somebody who, first of all, I mean, it, it, he, he's a he's a hard guy not to like. I disagree with thing just about everything that, uh, politically speaking, that uh, you could suggest but i think he you know is uh as a public servant acts in good faith and uh but he'll 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 sit on your show and say that joe altman is a friend and that's out of bounds joe altman has crossed the line and people like heidi ganell and george brockler and Christy Burton Brown and other people in the Republican Party have to be pushing back on this thing because it's going it's running out of control. We might have already crossed the Rubicon, but if there's any hope that the big lie doesn't, you know, plow through November 22 uh, and 2024 and you know destroy constitutional order. Um, you know, that's what it's going to take as people, because like me writing a top 10 list is not going to do it. It's going to take people like Heidi Gnau and George Brockler, Christy Burton Brown, other, you know, members of the Colorado GOP who, who still care about maintaining democratic elections, maintaining constitutional order. It's going to take them. They're the people who are going to be in the position to convince, you know, their voters that there wasn't fraud, the election wasn't stolen. You can trust the election in, in 2022 and 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 onward. And I, I I don't know if if you know we're past the point of no return, but if we're not, it's that's the only way I think it's going to happen. I hope George is listening. I hope other Republicans might listen. And I liked your tone there, and I'm honored that you listened to my interview of George Brockler, and we exposed our, you know, decades-long relationship, such as it is. And I tried to take a tone in that interview, but I'm not going to tell him, you can't be friends with Joe Altman. And yet he, he kind of knows that it's gone too far. And Quentin Young, you wrote these powerful words Right after January 6th, and I had the honor of writing a column for The Sun, and um, I had Ankush Kardori on this show. He writes big-time columns for everybody. He's a lawyer, and he wrote a powerful piece right after this happened. But you, my friend, you wrote these lines that I had to write down. Civilians who propagate lies about the election or express support for seditious behavior should be ostracized from civic life, deprived of commercial patronage, and shunned in the public sphere. Wow, Quentin, those words you wrote. 
Well, that was me trying to figure out how do we combat the lie? How do we essentially, you know, rescue the country, rescue democracy from these lies? Because, you know, the, the danger of those, the, the big lie, um, stop the steal activities poses to the country are is of a different order than anything the country has experienced since at least the Civil War. So w- what do we do? How do we stop this, this train barreling down the tracks? Um, I think it takes every one of us. I think it takes, you know, um, just people who care about democracy not condoning people not pushing back, elected leaders not pushing back, party leaders not pushing back on lies. And, and, and that's part of the reason I called out Heidi Ganau in the, in the honorable mentions. It takes, it's, it's, it takes saying it's not okay for somebody who wants to be governor of Colorado to allow Stop the Steal activity to persist without strongly pushing back on it because the alternative is to let it fester, to let it grow. Um, And, you know, I think it's serious enough where when I was talking about commercial patronage uh, to call out, say, businesses that are associated with um, the big lie and deprive them of commercial activity that doesn't you know there's not much you can do legally um in those cases but you can as an individual citizen i mean how far are you going to go like uh, john elway dealership he's a known republican isn't enough that you're just a republican no no not at all in fact uh you know just the opposite i and that's something that that I think maybe gets lost at least in the uh, top 10 list commentary, but I, I think is important for, for me to express is that this is not about uh, uh, Republicans or conservatives. In fact, after, after the election, I wrote something that basically said that, you know, basically I'm rooting for conservatives to, continue to have a party that represents them without the party going so far as to, you know, uh, eliminate democracy by trying to cancel the election. I mean, it's almost worse for Democrats or people on the left to have an opposing party kind of devolve such that it doesn't believe in democracy. Right, but that's the way it is. And you've written beautifully about Christy Burton Brown, who doesn't even sniff the top 10 list, but a guy like Ken Buck, I think as we try to figure out who's culpable in Colorado, you give an honorable mention to Ken Buck, who will say, yeah, I think elections in Colorado are okay, but in other states, there are lots of problems, which just feeds the big lie. And he signed on to those bullcrap you know, Paxton lawsuit and challenging this and that. Ken Buck, though, yeah. only gets honorable mention? Well, you know, uh, I, I think there's people, I think other people on the West are doing more, are more active in 
compromising democracy in Colorado. Um, you know, in fact, going back to Ash Epp, I don't know if you saw, but Ash Epp wrote a lengthy rebuttal to my piece. And it was really fascinating to, to read her for this reason. It, it allowed me to get into kind of like the, uh, the mind of somebody who is active in um, claiming the election was fraudulent to see what they thought about the list. And, and somebody like Ash Epp thinks that Ken Buck and Doug Lamborn and even people like uh, uh, Dave Williams, who, you know, from my view, is uh, far right, but in the view of election deniers like Ash Epp is part of the part of like the progressive team and not doing enough to. So she's way out there, way way out there, like QAnon. <laughs> or is anybody on your top ten list Q? Oh, there's Lauren Boebert. We'll get to her, but right above Ash Epp, or right below number six, Ron Hanks. I don't know this guy. Not sure I ever want to meet him. Didn't he go to the Capitol for Insurrection Day? He was present at the Capitol. It's a little unclear exactly what his movements were and uh, where he was, but I, I think he has claimed that he kind of. Uh, now this is a this is a sitting Colorado state representative. Okay, so you have to keep that in mind. He kind of I think followed the crowd up to the Capitol and kind of uh, wandered to the back of it, but, you know, never went inside. Um, you know, you ask about QAnon. Um, I don't know if anybody on that list um, claims to be part of QAnon. In fact, I, I, I don't think people um, espouse, you know, their membership in the Q community anymore, but um, the, the, the U.S. EIP, the U.S election integrity uh, plan people put out a manual on, um, you know, it was, it was mostly devoted to describing to volunteers how they can organize and um, giving an outline of uh, going around and doing what they call this uh, voter verification um, operation where they go door to door and they're asking voters you know, did you vote and how did you, how did you vote? Um, as part of that uh, manual, they repeatedly use the phrase, we are the plan. Now that comes straight out of the Q world. Uh, we are the storm, we are the plan. So while it's not explicitly we are Q, there are some connections and you know there's there's some right. other similarities between, we get it you know? when you say winter is coming it's a game of thrones reference and there's your cue stuff and as i have my bingo card of possible cue people i'd put ash up on there i don't know ash i never even met this person you're educating me but i've heard about the organization ron hanks maybe i have my cues about you but Tina Peters, the Mesa County clerk, who's number seven on your list. Yeah. Is she cute? Yeah. Because I think she might have a defense that she's like that shaman who really just got <laughs> taken in. Is she yeah. sort of like that? Does she have a high school education? Uh, I, I don't know about uh, Tina Peters. You know, one thing I can 
probably speculate about Tina Peters is that she's, how do I say this? Um, not in the driver's seat necessarily. I think she, she's in bed with the pillow guy. She's in bed with the pillow guy, but I think she was, you know, these, the, some of these other people like, like, uh, uh, Sean Smith and Sharona Bishop and Ash Epp. I think, you know, especially Sharona Bishop and, and Sean Smith, I think they, um, got to, Tina Peters, because because what they were what they were doing this this group this USCIP group they were going around to various um, county clerks. Tina Peters, Mesa County clerk and recorder. Yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody like Sean Smith, especially, and 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 you know, if you want to talk about why I think Sean Smith ranks number one, we can do that. But he was working with this group, USCIP working with ASHAP and going to county clerks and trying to get them to basically audit the November election. Okay, now I see. And, I didn't know who Sean Smith is, and he's a uh-huh. retired Air Force colonel, and you say he's the master manipulator of people like Tina Peters? Yes, yes. When you talk to you know people, county clerks, and you know, uh, state election officials, Sean Smith comes up as, he often comes up as kind of the person they often worry the most about because he, well, first of all, he shows up all over the place. Um, you know, he, when Secretary of State Jenna Griswold issued emergency election rules uh, largely to prevent the kind of audit in Colorado that was going on in Maricopa County, Arizona. Uh, Sean Smith was one of the people who uh, gave public testimony there. And if you go back and you can listen to it online, and, and if you listen to that, it's kind of, it, it's instructive because it kind of encapsulates, you know, where, he, where he's coming from. It also gives you this impression that, you know, unlike um, Joe Altman, who's, you know, he's just kind of, He's a little silly. I mean, he, it's hard for for me to take somebody like Joe Altman seriously, as dangerous as as he might be. But Sean Smith, when you listen to him, it's easy to imagine um, being persuaded by him because he, like I say in the piece, he's articulate and he has a background in in you know complex systems and he's he's a colonel he's a he's a retired colonel and um he sounds like he makes a persuasive case because you can recall you know details of election systems and he knows what is he knows the the various software uh, and processes of of um of uh of election systems and so and, and, and so he takes this and he, you know, evidently has been going around to county clerks and saying, this is why you need to do an audit. Now, you say he goes on right wing radio and then you have a hyperlink to Kim Monson. What show has yeah. she got? Oh, well, the first I had heard of her was was looking into uh, Sean Smith. So I, I actually do not know much about her. I, I listened to that particular show and i think i listened to one or two others and you know i think she essentially is you know um 
Because I'm wondering why I haven't heard more on Denver Trump radio. Maybe he's too radical for even them. Oh, Kim Monson's on KLZ. That's another company owned by Crawford, a Christian-based organization that does talk radio, Family Mm. Trust. Then you got 710 owned by Salem, which is a Christian organization that tries to affect the community through Christian channels, Spanish channels, and talk radio. Mm-hmm. Is there a certain Christian uh, aspect to any of this? Absolutely. I think that's that's hard to deny. Um, going back to um, USCIP, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure even in that manual, um, you know, they they mention that uh, you know this is this is part of um, God's work or, or whatever the the phrasing they use is. And right, and FEC it, United, that's faith, education, commerce, and faith is the first word and a big part of it. And I don't think they're talking about Islam as the faith. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Joe Altman, you know, it was recently revealed, um, claimed to have gotten to several county clerks. Um, you know, so he, he's, you know, I, I'm not sure how strong the connection between Joe Altman and the work of USCIP is, but, you know, in the general sense that they're all on the same page and how to go about, you know, effecting stop the steal activities in Colorado, they're kind of all on board on the, on the basic strategy. And he talked about getting to county clerks and they were successful one time. And that was in Mesa County, the biggest county on the Western Slope. And it was Tina Peters. And I think what they found in Tina Peters was, first of all, somebody who was inclined to believe, you know, buy what they were selling, um, but also probably more pliable than other county clerks. Um, and and this, is, this, is, this is an important thing to point out. There's, um, I think there's 38 Republican county clerks. out of the 64 counties in Colorado, they were successful with one of them. And that, and that's, that's actually a a point of optimism because, you know, I, and they were, and, and, and it wasn't for lack of trying, you know, like I, I spoke with clerk Dennis Schroeder in Albert. I've spoken with Carly cops in, in Welp. Um, and that guy would, in Albert County, I think you wrote a column on it. He went and did a hand recount because it wasn't that much in Albert County, and it confirmed exactly that Dominion did it right. Exactly, exactly. Um, and Sean Smith was down there talking to him, trying to, and and that was partly the the count that that Clerk Schroeder did. Then there was partly in response. And you know what? That's to, almost to identical Smith. to Donald Trump putting the arm on Rappensberger, who said, "Mr. President, we did a hand recount, and Dominion was accurate." And now we know from the New York Times that the memo in the White House said. Going after Dominion is barking up the wrong tree, but they barked at that tree anyway because they needed a scapegoat. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 
So, you know, I would trust my vote with my own vote. <laughs> and I'm on record with a pretty progressive view on this with, with 37 Republican county clerks throughout Colorado. And it, it and then they were only able to, 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 you know, take in one county clerk. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a good thing. Um, all right, let's keep it, naming names. Most people never heard of Tina Peters before all this, but they've heard of Scott Gessler. The guy ran for governor. He was a statewide elected official. He's a yeah. member of the Colorado Bar like me. He's been a guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. What's happened to this guy? Well, as I say in the piece, I think he deserves a special place of shame um, in all of this because he, at one point, was the top official overseeing elections in Colorado. If anybody needs to maintain um, confidence in the election systems in the state of Colorado, it's the Secretary of State. He served as Secretary of State. Yeah, do what, do what Wayne Williams did. Vouch for the system. You know it's correct, but no, for the mighty dollar, Scott Gessler. Remember, we used to have him on the radio because he needed to have a second job. Isn't, I mean, look, everybody likes money, but to this extent? Yeah, and, and now he's representing Tina Peters up in Mesa County, and I can't fault him for, you know, taking on whatever client he wants to take on, but uh, it is it is Tina Peters. And so it just reinforces this view of uh, Scott Kessler as, as being opposed to the the systems by which we elect our leaders. So and should I should I shun the guy now, according to your piece? You know, I will. I'm going to. You know who's shunning me? Number nine on your list. I had quite an encounter with her because I used to respect her. I've got zero respect anymore for Michelle Malkin. She came on my podcast and I hit her with hard questions and she had nowhere to go. Just like the Dominion, or like Coomer and Dominion are suing her ass. She's in a world of hurt uh, and I don't feel sorry for her in the least. And she's now a Colorado person living in Colorado Springs. Yeah. How culpable do you make Michelle Malkin? Very extremely among the most culpable because she is ferocious in her, you know, hate, I really think you have to call it. And um, I think somebody like her is she's she's motivated by something beyond just believing that the election was stolen. I think she is so kind of vicious in her um, view that 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 liberals and Democrats are illegitimate if they're in office. And you know, here here's another thing about uh, a big point I want to make is that, the, the Stop the Still movement, in, in my view, is not about the last election. It's about future elections. It's about delegitimizing elections so Republicans can claim for here on out that no Democrat, should they win, is legitimate. And you know, speaking of George Brockler, 
Last year before the election, Michelle Malkin was a guest on Brockler's show. And the election came up. And Malkin talked about going into the election. You know, I think George asked her something like, you know, what's your approach to this election? There's a lot of, you know, uh, hostility and partisanship and everything. And, and her response was to say, well, go armed. Okay, and and well, like Michelle yeah. Malkin's been a regular guest. I had her on the radio. Everybody over there has her on. I don't think I would anymore. Just like I wouldn't have a truther on back during nine eleven times. But it's more well, than that. With, did, huh? Look what she did with 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 Altman's story. I mean, she was one of the first people to take up Altman's story, right? And, and that Saturday, Altman. right after Corcoran had her on had him on then she went on newsmax with malkin that same saturday the timeline is clear how this big lie out of colorado got amplified and she was yeah. a huge part of it because her social media presence is monumental yeah i think she has some some cachet because you know she's been on fox and she had that show which i don't think she has that show on newsmax anymore i don't know if that's related to um, her uh, perpetuating the Altman lie, uh, maybe you know that, but, um, I, you know, regardless, she she still has a huge presence. On and Newsmax media. has settled up through uh, a lawyer I know at Davis Graham and Stubbs. They got out of it, Chad Williams, and I bet mm -hmm. they paid enough money to finance the rest of the Coomer lawsuit. And I wish nothing but the best to Coomer because if this big lie is going to be stopped, it might happen in Denver District Court. I think lawyers can affect the change, and great writers like Quentin Young can make a difference, too. You want to know one other way that the uh, the big lie is uh, kind of centralized in Colorado is the Eastman memo. Of course. You yes. know, we, we talked about Altman and Peters, but um, don't forget our friend john eastman no i'm not and you know what i read all your columns man you do great work and your takedown of lauren bobert who's on your list what is she number two or number three um first of all i had forgotten her speech because of all the events on january 6th it was hard to follow but i went to your story and you have a link in there to the four and a half minutes where she was working off the Eastman playbook, and she'd been to the White House the days before. She amplified Trump's message that it's going to be wild. She even said, my constituents are outside right now, and 20 minutes later, they were storming the gates. Man, you did the best job I've seen because you took every part of her speech and you interspersed your own comments. Go ahead, Quentin. Let loose on Lauren Boebert. Uh, do you agree that She's got maximum culpability in all of this. Yeah, I do. I do believe she has maximum culpability. She's been unapologetic in her role in January 6th. I mean, she that morning tweeted, today is 1776, and there's no other way to interpret that than, you know, school children understand that 1776 re refers to armed rebellion. That was that was that morning, and she knew that crowd would be out there. She, as she was making that speech, 
the insurrectionists were were storming the 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 west steps of of the of the capital. Um, you know, and it'll be interesting to see how much she comes up in the January sixth commission. Oh, please let there be justice, Lord, please. Because that 1776 tweet and her meetings with Trump, gosh, if we could get her on the witness stand. But you know what? She's a regular guest on Right Wing Radio. And you put in your top 10 list a guy who I got to know and really dislike, Randy Corcoran. The guy is dishonest, not a good lawyer. I have part of my show featuring his bumbling this last week in Denver District Court. How is it that the same guys who support the big lie are anti-mask, anti-vax, and that's that describes Joe Altman and FEC and all of that organization, right? They're all connected. Yeah. Michelle Malkin, they're all yeah, yeah. joined at the hip on this, but let's get back to Randy Corcoran because you put him in the top 10 list. Quentin, tell us why. Well, he he mostly, I think, deserves a place there because of his role in amplifying other people who might be more directly having, you know, influence in advancing the big lie. But it's it's not to be discounted. I mean, he had Marjorie Taylor Greene on his show, and these are people who I think just, you know, as Several we were talking times. about before, have to be shunned. I mean, these people have to be shunned, not amplified. So. Uh, but he also, um, as you allude to, is, is just part of this kind of like nexus of, um, you know, election deniers, COVID deniers. Um, you know, he was active in, I think, the, the you know, that situation at Bandamere where they defied public health orders. And uh, he was part of, and I think he, he, he wasn't he involved in representing uh Patrick Neville and Michelle Malkin when they sued. Let me tell you, the, Patrick Neville was regular on every show on Denver Trump Radio for a while there. He gets honorable mention in your piece, but he had the run of the radio stations. I've never seen anything like it. But let's keep the focus on Corcoran, who does have on that QAnon-loving conspiracy theory, Marjorie Taylor Greene, plus Lauren Boebert. And you know what I don't like about it? Well, there's so many things, but there's an element of racism in it all, isn't there? Well, I, I can't speak for Corcoran himself, but certainly with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and a few, uh, if those are the friends you keep, yeah, you do have to uh, wonder. But then uh, there Michelle was Malkin, the- Michelle Malkin, who's been called out by the Anti-Defamation League, they get in bed with the Proud Boys and the Groypers. And before we leave Corbin, and you're kind of giving him a pass, I think he could have gone up your list, but don't you have to be suspicious of a guy who gets involved? He's never been a prosecutor. He's been a criminal lawyer, criminal defense lawyer, a divorce lawyer. And all of a sudden, he says, I'm going to get into right-wing radio, and then he's going to start sponsoring things for the police and, you know, glorifying the police and the military, which is fine. But normally you'd have somebody with a background in law enforcement, which he didn't have. But yeah. I just see the tentacles of Trumpism through the Oath Keepers and how they've turned law enforcement into a group they can count on. This Trump is the guy for you. And it's distressing to me. But have you ever thought about 
why the hell is Randy Corcoran the head of some Salute the Police event? Yeah, I, I don't know. Randy Corcoran is kind of a uh, remains a mystery to me. And, and I kind of feel like, you know, he deserved a place on the list, but he wasn't quite as, you know, maybe maybe a little more feckless in whatever uh, Stop the Steal activities you might be involved with compared to, you know, other people like the USEIP people. Uh, but I, I certainly thought he deserved mention there. Right, but he's not just a radio host. He's a Republican National Committee man. He's elected right. by Colorado's Republican Party. What does that say about the Colorado GOP? It, it's it's not it's not good. It's not good, and it, it goes back to my point that you know I think the Colorado GOP really needs to do some soul searching and decide for itself that it's going to, I mean, this is a black and white question. There's, there's really not any nuance around whether we want to maintain our democratic system of government anymore. And I I think there's, there's, there's a huge question about whether, you know, people, you know, people like Steve Bannon, um, and people of his ilk, I don't think believe in the democratic system of government. You know, somebody like Steve Bannon, who who venerates um, people like the neo-fascist thinker Julius Evola, they might have a different view of of the way they want America governed. I know. Uh, that Listen to how calm you talk about it. I read your stuff and I get worked up. I read this line from you. We have to check the forces of autocracy now or invite a war later. Yeah. Autocracy yeah. is around the corner. And that's why I worry Joe Biden every time he slips up. And my God, he fell on his face with that Afghanistan withdrawal. That was horrible. And Hopefully he can get some programs through, but if Biden falters, and he is, that just opens the door to Trump again. What does that mean? Do, do you remember what the platform of the uh, yes, Republican National Yes, whatever Trump was? says. Whatever Trump says. I mean, that's the definition of autocracy. It comes, and, and there's so much of Trumpism and Trumpists and the QAnon and the Stop the Steal movement that resembles the cult. And, you know, if that's what we're dealing with, there might, we might be past the point of no return. I think maybe something like, you know, what would you say? 30% of, of, the, of the country believes that the election was stolen and there's... And you know who else Coloradans listen to should have been on your list? Maybe you haven't familiarized yourself with Matt Dunn, but he's dangerous like this Colonel Sean Smith because Matt Dunn is a doctor, a dentist with a, you know, a Southeast Denver practice, a family man. I liked him. I thought he was smart. But that guy's into every conspiracy theory and he puts it out there on Sunday nights on Can US. Fills in for others, used to fill in for me. I used to think, ah, this is interesting, but it all changed after January 6th, right? I mean, 
Come on now, that was an insurrection, and Trump would have gladly taken the benefit of it and remained in power. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you go back to the, the Eastman memo. I mean, this was the architecture for a coup. It was the game plan for a coup. It was the blueprint for eliminating, you know, democracy. Democracy, and you know, I we I had a, 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 I'll tell you a little disagreement with uh, my own. I have national editors over whether to characterize whether we had a peaceful transfer of power. I don't think. I think we clearly did not. I think even you know through in the in the country's whole history, this is the first time where we had unpeaceful transfer of power. And the thing about it is that we knew it was coming. There were predictions, there were studies before November's election that said with the rhetoric coming out of the White House, with the activities developing around the election, there's going to be violence. And there was. And so sitting here now, in you know uh, early October of 2021, looking forward to 2022, the system's blinking red, and and that's why I want the focus not to be you know for people who care about this on whether the last election was stolen or not because the people this the it, it the, is the, blinking the, red yeah and and there's I, more to come just watch his crazy speech in georgia was i okay with george brockler should i have been more code red or the the problem i have with with george brockler is he says things like you know talking about lauren bobers you know lauren bober is beyond the pale her her positions are you know Basically, I agree, and I thought about interjecting and saying, "Whoa, George Lauren Boebert," but I, I don't know if that would have been effective. But maybe I should have. Maybe you need to confront well, he, these people. Well, he says something like she's coming into her own. Right. I don't know what what she what he says. Could possibly, what she feels. Yes, I I don't know what he can possibly think. What what he's talking about? I mean, we're not talking about differences of opinion on tax policy or healthcare or immigration or, 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 or foreign policy or something like that. We're talking about the survival of our country. What about the advice Mario Nicholas and I gave in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge a couple weeks ago? George reacted to it, but we spoke 10 minutes about how Brock Therapy came out and said, look, I'm not down with this big lie. He kind of says that. He definitely doesn't amplify it, and he stays away from the topic. But if he said... You know, this Trumpism is not for me, and I'm going to chill until this fever passes through the party. Sounds to me like he's not going to run right now. He could emerge Mm. on the other side if there's another side as one of the big leaders. Otherwise, I I think he's like Heidi Ganahl. If he can't answer the question and come out against Trumpism, I mean, come on. Uh, This, This is a moment in our history, and this is the kind of issue where there's, there's, there's the only right thing to do is to actively, affirmatively say something. I could Being not quiet agree about more. it. 
and and evading the question of election integrity is not an option. And people who purport to be leaders in the Republican Party in Colorado, if you're not saying that we can trust elections, then you're you're then we're done damaging the prospects of American democracy. And how far do you go as a writer? I'm curious. Who is your editor? I didn't know you had bosses. I, I wonder, because you're the top guy at Colorado Newsline, when you write something, does somebody mm-hmm. look it over? Yes, I have. Uh, so uh, State's Newsroom, where, which is a network of outlets, um, has uh, at the moment two national editors. One of them is assigned to Colorado Newsline. And I should c- clarify that we're completely independent in that, you know, we in our newsroom decide what to cover and how to cover it. So we have a national editor who, you know, whose job is to uh, essentially kind of like in a, in a big picture sense, oversee uh, a handful of outlets. So, so my national editor oversees Colorado Newsline and, uh, you know, several other outlets, but... I'm really grateful for that because uh, I'm sure you, Craig, know as as a writer, it's always great to have another set of eyes on oh, yeah. whatever you write to make sure you don't say something silly or ignorant. Oh yeah, but, <laughs> and, 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 you, and, and you go pretty far, and you use some Nazi-like comparisons. Although in my columns, and thankfully the Sun allows it, I put a capital B. In, on big and a capital L on lie. Well aware that it was the big lie that helped lead to fascism in Europe and the Holocaust and all of that. But Mm -hmm. I think it's that serious, and I want to convey it. How serious is it? Is it fair to talk about fascism? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think think we need to be frank about it. I mean, comparisons to, I I don't think I've ever made uh, a Hitler or Nazi comparison because even if in this or that case it might be objectively legitimate, I think it just distracts from the conversation. And so I try to find other ways to emphasize the gravity of, you know, in, in the big lie case, um, what's happening. But it is instructive how that happened in Western civilized Christian country. It was unbelievable what happened 100 years ago in Germany that led to their authoritarian fascist regime, and I, I, I just have been shocked by the numbers of people around us who are susceptible to that. Yeah, that has that has been quite dismaying, hasn't it? Um, you know, I, I watch somebody like Joe Altman or Lauren Boebert or, I mean, my goodness, Donald Trump, and I say to myself, you know, I, I, if you turn this, if you turn the message off, not necessarily the sound, but if you didn't know what the message was and say, you know, the, 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 um, it was in a different language and you just, you know, experience the manner in which people like that talk, I think I'd still be turned off. And I, I have a hard time understanding, you know, with the message, with the anti democratic message with some of the just outright bigotry, how, you know, fellow Americans 
say, yeah, that's okay. I mean, the fact that, that, um, you know, 70 plus million Americans went through four years of Donald Trump and said, yeah, give me some more of that. It's just baffling to me and, and really dismaying. And, you know, and that was just the election. That was before January 6th. And then we get through January 6th and we understand in no uncertain terms what we're looking at here. An attempted coup, insurrection. And yet Donald Trump is almost certainly or likely going to be up, uh, is going to be on the ballot in 2024. Now, how I like that how happen? calmly you said that. And I'm so fired up today because I've been reading your writing and uh, my new friend Ankush Kardori's writing. And I think America is in dire trouble. I want to sound the alarm. Your writing is so emotional. Way to go. I love it. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. It's high praise coming from well, it's just an honor to meet you, Quentin, and I encourage everybody to go to Colorado Newsline. I think you have you have that editor in you, that calm presence, yet your words are so fiery, and you put it together. I love your hyperlinks. I take pride in mine, but man, you're teaching me how to do it. You have like four hyperlinks. I, I just love the way you use it. Beautiful. I hope that helps. I mean, I do try, I do treat links as um, important resource material uh, as, you know, for readers who want to learn more, as well as helping to corroborate assertions I make. All right. The website is coloradonewsline.com. The name Quentin Young, Q-U-E-N-T-I-N Young, Y-O-U-N-G. This particular article titled, it's a commentary, Colorado's Top Ten most dangerous election deniers. Their objective is to ensure Coloradans never again trust election results. Now, as the writer and the editor, do you get to make the headlines? I do. I do. How'd I do? Excellent. Excellent. That's the luxury most writers don't have, right? Yeah. You know, someday we're going to have a a bigger staff and Maybe I'll just get to write stuff and other people can edit it and write the headlines for me. But uh, we all have to wear a lot of hats here. No, I think that's cool. And uh, I'll leave you with the question I asked my other guest, who's a smart lawyer who's dedicated to exposing this insurrection, holding people accountable. How much of your attention does this take? How much is appropriate? for people to pay. Do you, you know, it, it's, it's on my mind a lot. And sometimes I think it's not healthy. Boy, <laughs> it's funny you say that because, uh, it happens at least a couple of times a week where I, I have to tell myself, like, you just have to look away because I find myself, you know, going to, uh, talk to say like my daughter, I have a 17 year old daughter and I find myself kind of in this different world of, you know, thinking about the horrors <laughs> or, uh, that have beset the country. And, and whereas, you know, she's just a teen and, and she, she's, you know, smart and understands that these things are going on, but it doesn't occupy your mind like it does to me and it can be un- unhealthy. For me, uh, it takes up a lot of 
my attention and I have made it uh, a mission to, you know, I think the two biggest stories facing humanity and therefore the two biggest stories that journalists should focus on are number one, climate change. Uh, but, but, you know, which is, you know, that's like a global long-term story, um, slow burn, uh, so to speak. Whereas um, election denial, number two, is immediate and, you know, right in front of us. And so I've, I've tried to make it uh, my business to stay on top of it and pay a lot of attention to it and write a lot about it in the hopes that, um, you know, it gets through and raises awareness among people who might, might not understand what's what what the threat is now you're an editor and a smart guy and you were nice enough to say great things about me so i'm going to do a mea culpa to you because you're an editor kind of a father figure you have a 17 year old i'm a lot older than that but can you forgive me my sins even on the radio we'd talk about climate change and toward the end i'd have mike nelson on i started to get it but in the past i'd say I studied political science, not hard science. I don't know if it's real or not. And I feel like now I wish I would have said more and did more in my small way. And I'm trying to make up for it. And I was foolish enough or maybe influenced by my job. I don't know what it was, but I did not like Hillary Clinton. My politics have always been kind of stuck in the middle. I thought she was corrupt and I was tired of the Clintons, I had Clinton fatigue, and I thought Donald Trump was, uh, he might be a pro-choice, pro-gun control New Yorker. Let's give him a chance. He'd probably want to consolidate power in the middle. Boy, was I wrong. And his first year wasn't terrible. He beat the Islamic State. But right after I went to the White House, he, he gave a speech to the police where he told them to bonk people's heads. And then he Charlottesville happened, and... I had to speak out against that. Kyle Clark had me on, and I did so. And then I I just fell. I was never on the Trump train. As I said, I got on to vote for him, and then I got off. And I ran as far as I could from Trump. I'm begging forgiveness. Is it okay, Quentin? I mean, isn't that what we need? Other people to say, yeah, I supported Trump, but that was a big mistake. Boy, boy, I mean, if, you know... If other people could uh, emulate your your uh, humility and say and and even courage in some people' cases to say I was wrong, what's happening is is wrong. Trump is dangerous, and anybody who supports him, uh, I can't abide. Um, whether you voted for him or not. I think that would be, I think that's what the country needs. So I think people should look to you who voted for him in 2016 as an example. I hope they do. Well, thanks, Quentin. I was kind of fishing for that compliment, but I've got a lot of respect for you, especially as I binged all your columns. I'm going to keep reading. I'm on, uh, I'm going to check it out. Thanks for reading my stuff and listening to my podcast. And I hope a lot of people listen to your wisdom and read your work. Thanks a lot for being on my show. It's been a thrill. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care, Quentin. Quentin Young, Colorado Newsline. Thanks again. Bye now. Bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, 
and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hello. Hi, is this Ankush Kardori? It is. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How did I do with your name? Good. You did pretty good. I figure it's easy once you think about a car door, right? Uh, yes. Yes, actually. That is actually how I try to uh, uh, explain it. Well, that's great. I really appreciate you coming into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge because, man, you are a beautiful writer. And uh, first of all, let's make sure you're qualified to come in. Are you, in fact, an attorney? I, I am, yes. Thank you for asking. And tell us, tell us a little about yourself. Where did you grow up and how did you obtain a legal education? I believe it's Ivy League, but go ahead. You describe it. Um, I was born in New York, but I grew up in, uh, Springfield, Illinois, central Illinois, actually. And then I went to college and law school, um, in a joint degree program at Columbia in New York. Um, I worked at a law firm for a while, as many people do after graduating from law school. Uh, then I went to the justice department in the summer of 2016, um, to work in the justice department's broad section, which, uh, it's a kind of obscure office that uh, is supposed to specialize in kind of white collar crime and financial fraud in particular, uh, uh, as for my unit. Um, and then I left early last year, um, which happened to sort of coincide with, uh, you know, the pandemic. Um, and so I kind of fell into writing a little unexpectedly. Uh, it wasn't really my plan. I was sort of taking a break uh, and then uh, sort of began writing to kind of pass the time as it became clear that, you know, that the pandemic was, um, you know, not going to end anytime soon. And then, uh, you know, I was very fortunate uh, in terms of uh, having editors and outlets 
um, really being receptive uh, to my work and, you know, coming out at a time when I think there was sort of a really almost unprecedented level of interest, I think, in the workings of our Justice Department. Uh, and so people were pretty keen to, to, to read stuff. And I think for better or worse, and I know we're going to get into that as we talk uh, today, you know, that interest has sort of continued. Uh, and so there's been kind of no shortage of things to think and write about. You are officially admitted into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, and I like the fact that you were a prosecutor, and I was a prosecutor myself for 16 years, but you worked in white-collar crime. I really didn't. I was in the Knife and Gun Club, and yet I know there are differences in prosecutors, and we will get to that, but I'm intrigued by your website and your presentation. First of all, do yourselves a favor out there. Go read Ankush Kardori because you write so well, and you did it right on the heels of January 6th at a time that everybody was emoting. I have a column I write for the Colorado Sun, and another guest that's going to be on this show, Quentin Young, runs Colorado Newsline, and he writes beautifully just like you, Ankush, and I just think you're a beautiful writer. I don't know what you do in your law practice, but my gosh, I bet you can write some great appellate briefs. Oh, well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. Uh, second, I'm actually, I'm still an active member of the bar, but I'm not, not practicing law. I'm just sort of doing writing and other projects full time. Uh, as I said, it's sort of not my plan, but I've kind of evolved nicely and I and I enjoy it. Uh, there's been a, a much larger, larger audience than I would have anticipated. So, um, uh, and then with respect to the January 6th piece, um, you know, I wish I could say that I had written that entirely on the day of the unfortunate events. As it happened, and this is a little behind the scenes uh, sneak peek, I had been, we, we had actually been working on a piece, me, me and uh, my editor at the New York Review Books, that was going to be about Trump's effort to um, you know, intimidate Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in Georgia, and kind of the legal issues that had raised. And actually, we were closing the piece on the 6th. And that afternoon, I was going through kind of my final round of edits. And then on the television, of course, then, you know, I started to see what was unfolding in D.C. And rather than um, kind of shelve it, we decided, well, let's, you know, actually push to get this out and rework it. Not, well, add in some relevant points, but of course, you know, the piece that had already been in the works about kind of the election tampering and, and the issues emanating from that just became even more urgent. Right. Um, and, and, and we have that sound. In fact, we're going to intersperse a little of it right now. Get straight to our top story tonight, and it's a big one. President Trump doubling down on claims of voter fraud in Georgia, and he's heard on the phone asking Georgia's Secretary of State to find votes to overturn our election. The one-hour phone call taking place Saturday, yesterday, and you can hear the president berating Brad Raffensperger and declaring he actually won the election. We have team coverage tonight with three different reporters. Uh, we're going to begin with Hope Ford, who shares more of the back and forth between the two Republicans. I have to find 12,000 votes, and I have them times a lot, and therefore I won the state. President Trump, in an hour-long phone call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, asking for votes that would put him above Biden. I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. 
Uh, you know, we have that in spades already. The president reigniting already debunked claims of voter fraud and machine malfunctions. They're uh, changing the equipment on the uh, on the Dominion machines. And, you know, then that's not legal. Let's keep talking about Georgia because that was a big deal. And to me, Donald Trump's pattern is he covers up big crimes. And I think they are crimes with bigger crimes. And to me, once the die was cast with the release, what was it, January 3rd of the Georgia stuff, he said, let's let it all ride on January 6th. That way they'll forget about Georgia. Well, it practically, as a practical matter, it did overshadow Georgia. And actually, this has been one of my sort of frustrations, really, with, with some of the coverage and, the, and kind of the Justice Department's, frankly, approach to this issue, which is... Um, I don't think one or the other needs to kind of supplant uh, itself in the public's mind. I think actually there's kind of reinforcing efforts, really. And it seems odd, but, you know, now all the attention, particularly among legal writers and the like, and the pundits and, you know, the TV folks has sort of shifted entirely to January 6th. But it's like, well, even if January 6th had never happened, we should still have had an investigation concerning the Raffensperger stuff. And I think what January 6th, you know, crystallize is that, you know, the dangers of the sort of broader effort that Trump is undertaking to sort of destabilize, delegitimize, you know, our electoral system were serious, much more serious, I think, than we thought even just a couple of days earlier, much more um, deliberate. Um, and then, you know, in the wake of that, you know, we, we, obviously we can get into this a little bit. Um, it seems that the Justice Department has just sort of decided to give a, Trump a pass on both issues and both events. Right. And that was what brought you to my attention. But I went back and saw your beautiful piece. It was titled Wanted, Lead Suspect in Election Fraud Conspiracy. Once Trump leaves office, he loses immunity. That was the subhead. And man, you and I are former prosecutors. We needed an AG to come in and investigate this. We, we don't I, have I just, it. Yeah. It's so frustrating. You wrote this piece called Merrick Garland's Moderation to Excess. And I've been saying it on the podcast, but you wrote it to a larger audience. Merrick Garland is a big disappointment to me. I've seen the type. I've seen him come through the Denver DA's office. Some are just kind of timid. Some prosecutors are aggressive. To me, we've got a broad conspiracy, a lot of it's on C-SPAN, right? It's it's not that hard to put together. They put it together in the impeachment case. Uh, and where are you, Merrick Garland? Take it away, Ankush. Yeah, no, I, I, I share your frustration. I, I wish I could say I was totally surprised, but you know, when I saw his testimony at his confirmation hearing, and I actually wrote wrote about the confirmation hearing after, after I saw it, I, I think... Um, we kind of saw a preview of this sort of timidity and this kind of aversion to what he regards as quote unquote politics and anything that might, you know, code as quote unquote political, which practically speaking, I think just means to him anything that will upset uh, some segment of the political sort of a, a political class or populace. And, you know, it, one of the things that's really vexing to me and I'm sure you'll appreciate this as a as a former prosecutor, is that, you know, my view has been like we've had more than ample information out in the open, as you said, some of it's on C-SPAN, 
um, and some of it's in the, the recorded call with Ravensburger to conduct an investigation. Now, I am not saying I'm in a position to prejudge the outcome of that investigation, but among many people, uh, including some legal writers, and I think perhaps even Garland himself, they seem to think, well, based on the information that we know now, we wouldn't be able to establish that he ha uh, that Trump himself committed a crime. But of course, that's what the investigation is for, right? These are entirely different questions, uh, whether to conduct an investigation versus whether to charge a case. And as you know, you know, there's a huge space between those two questions conceptually, temporally, and that space has been collapsed in the public discourse in a way that, you know, as I'm sure you saw in your time many times uh, at the DA's office, you know, is just unwise and, and foolish. You don't want to prejudge the outcome of the Right. And, and in your world, white collar crime, that takes a while. You got to build the case. But to me, this was an act of violence. That's when the Knife and Gun Club comes in and arrests get made and conspiracies resolved within a week. Yes. And actually, you know, I did actually spend my, my arguably my most formative time in the Justice Department was a, a detail that I took right when I started, which was a six month stint in the Eastern District of Virginia doing misdemeanors. So I did some drug cases, gun cases. I even did uh, parking <laughs> tickets on federal highways. And in many ways, that was actually the most eye opening part of it, because that that is really both at the state level and the federal level really the um, the core of what our criminal justice system deals with, right, or, or, or focuses on. Uh, and we can have debates about, you know, whether that should be the case, but it is that, you know, violence, guns, drugs, immigrant, these are the things that our criminal justice system does focus on. And in the wake of January 6th, I think, uh, you know, in part because of the political overtones, we really did not see the sort of response that you would expect if you had seen the same act of kind of mass um, violence or mass, you know, protests or whatever that had not been political in nature, but had just been at some office building or something. Right. I mean, there would have been a huge crackdown quickly if something like that had happened outside of a quote unquote political context. And, you know, if arrests would have been made right away, then maybe that stooge Kevin McCarthy, who turned on Trump for a minute, along with Lindsey Graham, Maybe they would have said, good, yeah, justice system needs to take care of this. It was violent. It was outrageous. But those arrests of the people in charge, not the people who broke in, but the people who sent them, organized it, paid for it, if those arrests would have happened, maybe it would have changed American history, right? It may very well have. I mean, one of the, one of the issues, you know, that we've learned, we learned pretty quickly actually on January 6th itself, is that the government wasn't prepared to have people in place to make those sorts of arrests, but it should have been. And and unfortunately, the FBI and DOJ and Garland have been far too um, uh, coy about really what led up to the failure to kind of properly prepare for that day's event, including whether or not the White House or political employees were involved in that decision. And, you know, to your point about McCarthy, again, I, I would myself not want to prejudge the outcome of an investigation and the political among the political actors on that day. But one of the things that has frustrated me, among many other things, is is that the Justice Department has not been clear at all about whether it intends to even look into connections between Republican lawmakers and the White House and, you know, the people who were 
uh, and who stormed the, the Capitol keepers, that day. And the Proud Boys and uh, all the Lauren Boebert types. Boy, there are tentacles in Colorado. But let's stick with Merrick Garland because you beautifully undress him. What was it? Oscar Wilde, who said everything in moderation, including moderation. Um, <laughs> Maybe. I, I should have looked that up. But uh, that's the name of your piece, right? Uh, Merrick Garland's uh, Moderation to Excess. It is. It is. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I, the disappointment that many people have had with him um, is entirely justified. Um, I've been very unhappy with, you know, many of the things I've seen. I mean, look, on some policy issue, on, on, well, I don't want to discount this. So let me be fair, fair to him in the Justice Department. On many policy issues, particularly pertaining to civil rights issues, there has been a market shift uh, between the bar and the Garland Justice Department. However, this is one of the things I mentioned in the piece. I'm pretty sure all of those things would have happened under any other Democratic attorney general because they were really priorities of the Democratic Party and the progressive political legal uh, kind of apparatus. And I think a lot of it has to do not so much with Garland, but with Benita Gupta, who's the associate attorney general, Kristen Clark, who's the head of the Civil Rights Division, both of whom had very, very you know, deep to- uh, experience uh, and, and significant profiles in civil rights and policing work, you know, the things where there was really significant and I care about that stuff. Yeah. I care about that stuff on Kush, but I really care about January sixth and where are the knife and gun people? Wasn't there a lady there who was supposed to be aggressive? Lisa Monaco or some such person? She yes, she is the deputy attorney general and she had um I don't know all the details of her bio, but she had spent a lot of time in the Justice Department uh, I believe she had been on the Enron task force, but yes, she was supposed to be kind of the tough-minded person uh, there. Uh, I, but honestly, I, I, I think the, the January sixth stuff. I mean, it, it, the easiest way to explain kind of the lack of, uh, you know, you know, a, a su- sufficiently robust federal criminal response is frankly to just look at and read and watch Merrick Garland. I think it's coming from him um, because he has been, you know, very timid. You know, around anything that he thinks could stir up political controversy, and I and I share your view that um, you know the significant policy changes in these other areas, you know, they don't somehow compensate for the you know significant risks. I think we're now running for the long-term health of our democracy by a failure of accountability for January 6th and the election, uh, an attempted election tampering, uh, because these things, you know, they come around. Right. And they may not come around anytime soon, but they're going to come around one day and we're going to we're going to incur the costs of our failure to kind of treat these issues with the seriousness that they were that that they deserve. And Merrick Garland is not going to be the attorney general when that happens. It's going to be someone else. He's not going to be the one that incurs those consequences. It's going to be us. It's going to be our children, our grandchildren. Um, And, you know, it's very unfortunate to me because I, I think there's a short term political calculus that is a very attractive uh, to, to Garland and who, you know, whoever's advising with the Justice Department, but they are, you know, it's supplanting, you know, a concern for long-term structural risk to our democracy. Damn it. I wish he would have appointed you attorney general or uh, Glenn <laughs> Kirshner or even me. I mean, why appoint a timid guy? It kind of goes back to Joe Biden, doesn't it? And he got the guy. He had other people who would have died to be attorney general who are aggressive prosecutors. 
but he chose Garland, who you portray beautifully in your column. He's kind of a swamp creature, and maybe it's, you know, we just don't do these things to former presidents. It's it's kind of an unwritten rule of the swamp here, but Trump wasn't part of the swamp, and I just worry about it because I really don't pay attention to conservative allegations and this Hunter Biden crap, but it just makes you wonder uh, why Joe Biden would endorse this kind of institutional approach. Does he have something to hide? Does he have something to worry about? Am I reading too much into it? Why choose uh, Why choose a timid guy like Merrick Garland? You know, I, I think... Um, I think Biden selected someone who is uh, dispositionally like himself. Uh, and I think, you know, Garland, and I don't think that's a good thing, just to, to, not to, to spoil it. Um, but, uh, you know, in much the same way that Biden seems committed to pursuing, you know, bipartisan legislative deals that, you know, may or may not come together and to kind of, you know, seeking this, you know, above ground sort of unifying uh, a tone, I think Garland is, is similar. I think, I don't think it's actually a coincidence, I think, and I, and I don't think it was lost on Biden and his advisors that Garland would take this approach to um, these sorts of issues. In fact, there was a report from NBC News a couple of weeks after no, the election in November that didn't get, really get picked up uh, as, as much as it probably should have, given everything that was going on, and maybe that was fine and, and understandable. But in that in that story, um, the reporters cited uh, a bunch of advisors around Biden, basically saying he wanted an attorney general who would not relitigate the past and who would not allow Biden's presidency to be consumed with investigations of his predecessor. And I think Garland, you know, it's not an accident that um, Garland has sort of done those things. I'm not suggesting that it's been at Biden's direction, but, you know, Biden, I think, you know, accurately assessed and his advisors accurately assessed that he and Garland have similar views about this stuff. And I think your point about Garland being um, kind of an established mint DC figure is also uh, uh, accurate. And one I think that was not given enough attention during his confirmation and around that, because I think, frankly, what really I think drove a lot of the political and public kind of support around Garland was this dramatic arc, right? The fact that he had been denied a seat on the Supreme Court uh, at the tail end of the Obama administration. Of course, he was selected by Obama precisely because he was moderate, and Obama incorrectly thought he was so moderate that Republicans would be forced right. to confirm him. And so, for some reason, this sort of notion that, you know, Garland would now ascend in the Biden administration to, you know, the highest law enforcement position in the country I think had a dramatic appeal for a lot of people. I mean, not just over psychoanalyze, uh, but I think, frankly, that was a lot of it. And it's not the only instance of what I would call sort of, you know, stunt casting in, in this cabinet. Um, but I think that had a lot to do with it. Merrick Garland fooled me. I was aware that he supervised the Denver prosecution of Tim McVeigh. Did you remember that? The Oklahoma City bombing trial got moved to Denver and I was fortunate to, to be in the courtroom, and I didn't meet Merrick Garland, but Beth Wilkinson and all the people who prosecuted Nichols and McVeigh right in Denver, and they sought the death penalty, and they achieved it against Tim McVeigh, and I thought, wow, that is an aggressive prosecutor. But 
I'm disappointed. And my gosh, do you ever think what would have happened if you would have been the attorney general or somebody aggressive like me or Glenn Kirshner? Where would this have gone? Or think of a young Rudy Giuliani and why the hell isn't he arrested? And before I let you go on this, something was said by my former radio partner, conservative as hell, but pretty smart. And I'm not happy with the way he's responded to the big lie. But he said, if Trump or somebody close to Trump were to be arrested, there would be violence on the streets. So respond to that, too. Maybe Biden and Garland wanted to avoid violence on the streets that would have followed. Well, you know, I've heard that concern. I don't think our law enforcement uh, prerogatives ought to be dictated by, um, you know, the improper, irrational, you know, behavior of people in the country. Um, You know, we can't be held hostage to uh, overzealous supporters of Trump or our fears about what those people might do. We should do what we are supposed to do and, and prepare for an event like that if it were to, to come about. Um, and, you know, I, I think in terms of like an alternative universe, um, I, I wouldn't even, you know, I wouldn't even posit, you know, some something as remote as like me, which will never happen, uh, being the attorney general or, or you know, some of the pundits. But, you know, uh, Sally Yates was in consideration, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, strong consideration. And I think, you know, is generally regarded as someone who would have been a little, uh, a bit tougher, uh, I think had maybe broader support among DOJ lawyers at the time. Um, what about Doug and, Jones? Yeah, I mean, Doug Jones had, yeah, his, his stature as a U.S. attorney and, you know, his significant work uh, doing civil rights enforcement. And, you know, what we didn't have with Doug Jones, which we did have with Sally Yates, is really evidence of how she kind of held up under real serious pressure, right, during the tail end of the Obama administration when right. the Flynn call was happening, when Comey was sort of running amok. And, you know, she conducted herself very well. I think if the historical record is kind of looked at fairly and comprehensively, I think she's gotten a bit of a raw deal thanks to a lot of conservative media folks. But she conducted herself very well, uh, very cool under pressure. That's kind of the, the almost the most important qualification uh, you would want an attorney general. Um, so, you know, I, I would have liked to have seen her get more serious consideration, at least in the public debate. Um, and would she have been more aggressive? You know, I think probably. Um, and I don't think there would have been chaos in the streets. I mean, again, I, I know people have different views on this. My own view is I just think there should be investigations. I do not know what the result of those investigations should be. Right. And now if the president of Trump and his supporters, you know, think that he did nothing wrong. I, I don't think this is the sort of Justice Department that is going to railroad him. Right. And they should be as invested in an independent, you know, thorough, orderly investigation that would potentially exonerate him as one that might conclude that, you know, something more serious needs to occur. Right. But so much of it is just recorded, like with Rappensberger and what he said on the lips before the January 6th speech. And Michael Cohen was convicted, what, by the Southern District of New York, where you worked, of uh, a campaign crime for individual A, which we all know is Donald Trump. 
Then you have all the tax frauds that it's fallen on Morgenthau to do, as you point out in your beautiful column. You've got a big menu. It's almost like the Cheesecake Factory. My God, there are so many crimes. Put it all together in a RICO. I mean, they're letting this guy get away with everything, and he's not going away. He's coming back for more. Yeah, I mean, look, to my mind, the most significant areas where a federal investigation at least would have been warranted, still is warranted, although it's not apparently not going to happen, is the stuff surrounding the election and is the stuff concerning his finances. And I think, you know, one of the things I, I suspect, the theory that Garland and his supporters would articulate is, look, on in both of those areas, we have local prosecutors looking at these things. And, I, you know, I am not entirely satisfied by that answer. I think, you know, look, I think the Raffensperger call by itself, right? And I, and I told you, right, actually, that I was writing the piece that I published on January 6th, even before I knew that the events of that afternoon were going to happen. I think the call itself should have triggered an investigation. If, the, if this were a mayor who had called, you know, an election official in a local race and we heard the exact same call, there would have been an investigation. Charges attempt to influence a public official. That's the state charge in Colorado. There must be a corollary like that in Georgia and under federal law. It was a federal election he was trying to fix. Exactly. And, you know, on the financial side, there is obviously a, a significant body of evidence, including or, or information suggesting potential federal uh, criminal impropriety, most significantly you know, the material that the New York Times published surrounding his taxes. Now, again, if this were anyone else and a series of articles had been published like that about this person's finances, a federal investigation would have been opened the day after those, the first story ran. We would not be seeing this sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, refusal to kind of uh, to, to do something about it and sort of abdication, if you will, to local authorities. And I think you know, it remains to be seen what will happen in Fulton County with their investigation of the called Raffensperger and, uh, you know, the New York DA's investigation of Trump's finances. You know, I, I, I tried to avoid predictions, but I think I would presume that we will not see charges in either case uh, or investigation concerning Trump for, for, for a variety of reasons. But I think just practically speaking, I think it's very unlikely to, to occur in each, each case. Maybe I'll be surprised. Um but, um, yeah, no, look, I share your view. I think on the election and the in the sort of the election bucket and the financial impropriety bucket, there was ample information in the public domain that that if this were anyone else would have immediately resulted in a federal investigation. And let's not leave out sex crimes. All right, he can't be charged with raping Jean Carroll, but the Justice Department got dragged into it because Trump's uh, under Barr, uh, Barr, the AG, said, no, Gene Carroll's suit, uh, we've got to get involved on the side of the president because he said she was a liar while he was doing presidential things, which is a bunch of bull in my mind. And Merrick Garland could have abandoned that position, but as further evidence that he's bending over backwards for Donald Trump, he's decided to, to keep the government against this woman who... I believe her over Trump. I think he did that dirty deed in that department store. Uh, I agree with basically every word you just said. Um, 
I think it's I think the theory is ridiculous. I think the judge uh, in in the Southern District of New York who rejected the argument when Barr was still the attorney general and wrote a 60 page opinion explaining why the Justice Department's theory was wrong. A judge who is actually among the most well regarded in that district um, thoroughly explained why the theory is ridiculous. And, you know, Barr appealed it and it was, you know, really bad. I mean, I don't know how else to say it, that Garland maintained that appeal rather than withdrawing it. Um, and bad in almost every way. I mean, I, I wrote a column, uh, I think, for Slate, you know, not long after that decision uh, came out. And I talked a little bit about it in that um, in my most recent piece for, for the review, the moderation to excess piece. But I share your view. I think it's appalling. Right. Now, tell me, is there a chance Merrick Garland will be relieved of the job? Because I've seen it on Twitter. I don't know if you're on Twitter. I don't think you are, but he trends occasionally, and it's people like me saying, what the hell? Where are you, man? So is there any chance that there will be a groundswell? Uh, I'm not on Twitter, <laughs> for, my, for my own sanity. Um uh, I don't know, to, to, to be honest. Here's, and I know that there are significant pockets of public displeasure, and, and rightly so. I honestly don't think that the White House cares. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, you know, I think it would be unusual for any attorney general to last less than two years just because it would look so bad for someone to leave. But I don't see, quite honestly, a lot of discontent. Um, in the White House, I don't hear it among lawyers in D.C. Again, I think he is executing, you know, with the exception of maybe the decision of the Carroll case, generally, right, like the overarching kind of looking forward and not backward uh, operational sort of theory. I think that's consistent with what this White House wants. And that's unfortunate. So I don't think they see any pressure or, or themselves intend to exert any pressure for Garland to leave. So I'd expect him to be be there, you know, perhaps until, uh, you know, for a while. Um, I don't know not quite how long. But, right, but if you don't want to look backwards, you pointed out the contradiction that they're letting that uh, that guy Durham uh, start prosecuting cases from five years ago. There's a complete inconsistency. What's going on there? You know what? I wish I knew. <laughs> You're right. Uh, I, uh, the thing about Durham going on with this sort of aimless investigation into, you know, Perkins Coie, the law firm that that represented Hillary Clinton in 2016, I, I think it's, I think based on what we have seen though so far in terms of the output, is just not supported, and we're spending a lot of money, and it's getting supported by a lot of people who were highly opposed to Mueller and his investigation who just seemed to be cheering him on. It's funny, I can tell you, I, you know, you're referring to a column that I wrote for Politico yesterday about Durham's investigation on arguing that Garland should sort of insist that Durham wind it down. And I've gotten so much email from, uh, from conservatives, from Republicans kind of saying like, too bad, this is your comeuppance, you know, where were you during Mueller, this and that. Now, of course, I was still the Justice Department when I wasn't writing during the Mueller investigation, but um, this has been stopping these people for some, from, from sort of accusing me of being a hypocrite and saying, just sort of suck it up. But um, I, I think, you know, look, I, I think it's another symptom of sort of Garland's aversion to what he thinks is kind of quote-unquote politics. And I think it's very unfortunate because I think, you know, he had to approve, or at least he could have intervened to stop 
um, Durham's indictment uh, from September, the one that's been in the news against one of Hillary Clinton's lawyers, and, and he didn't. And I suspect, you know, that's perhaps because he thought it would generate too much political controversy because the case, and I'd be curious to hear your own thoughts, but from my perspective, the case against Sussman is very weak um, in absence of political context. Yeah, I have not reviewed it to the extent you have, and I encourage everybody to read your piece. It was in Politico. My gosh, you write for the New York Review. What do you do, write a piece and then bid it out? Or how does that work? Do they commission you? Uh, you know, it varies. So when I first started last year, um, I would just pitch, right? And I, you know, anyone who's, you know, in, among your audience who wants to write, I mean, this is, this is what, kind of what you do. I would just pitch. I'd send an, find an editor at a publication that I liked and send an email with a couple of paragraphs. Here's my background. Here was my idea. So I was doing that for last, you know, most of last year. And I was getting a lot of, you know, very, very, uh, you know, welcome reception from editors. I was very, very lucky um, at the journal and, and, and other places it ain't as well. Luck. It ain't luck. You write magnificently. Go ahead. Well, thank you. Um, more recently, um, as I've sort of developed more, you know, longer working relationships, um, I do get uh, commissions. So editors will come in and say like, hey, what do you think about this? Do you want to write about this? Or like in the case of... Um, very rarely, but this sometimes happens when when editors see so, something coming down the pike. In the case of, for instance, the indictment of Alan Weisselberg, um, an editor at New York Magazine who I work with called and said, "Look, there's this reporting that you know Weisselberg's going to be indicted next week. You know, can we just sort of plan for you to write uh, the day that that happens? Kind of give us your reaction or whatever." Um, you know, because that was well telegraphed, right? It was like clear almost right. to the day exactly. Yeah, when it would come, when that indictment would come down. So um, it's a bit of a mix these days. I mean, sometimes have I I have things I want to write about that you know I'll talk to editors about, and sometimes you know some of the best ideas, the, the pieces that I've had that I myself have enjoyed the most have not been my ideas. They've been ideas that editors uh, came to me with, and so that's something I really enjoy about writing too. Is like you can be encouraged to think about some issue or that you wouldn't have been otherwise. And, you know, kind of take you down these paths that you never, never would have gone down. We need you to get back to law. We need you on the U S Supreme court. My gosh, what great opinions you would write, but I need your opinion on this because you're a smart guy and you, you study these issues. I think without a doubt, Vladimir Putin is corrupt. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes. yes All I right. Would. And and he tried to corrupt and to an extent through the Clinton Foundation. I, I felt like Hillary Clinton was a little compromised by some of that crap. And now I totally believe that Donald Trump was compromised by Putin and Russia, that he's a corrupt guy and Putin sized him up. But you hear even in Georgia at his latest rally, Trump says, oh, they cooked it up, Russia, Russia, Russia. And I think, yeah, this is because you are in bed with Russia, Russia, Russia. What do you think about that? You know, I I, I have somewhat mixed feelings on the subject. I mean, I think the, on the, in terms of his foreign policy orientation towards Russia, you know, I don't purport to be an expert in, on some of the policy decisions about like Nord dream and the like and, and that sort of stuff. I think, you know, the general 
thesis, which was, or hypothesis, if you will, which the, the Mueller investigation was kind of supposed to, te- to, to test, is whether There's there was... There's another sort of, timid guy. Go ahead, but he, he <laughs> I yes, tied yeah. him up as Mr. Wuss when he testified. He was supposed to be a tough guy. Maybe he was, but in his 70s, no. He's another Washington guy, right? Yeah, well, look, if you if you really want sort of the inside take on that from someone who's very critical, you know, Andrew Weissman, who was one mm-hmm. of the senior deputies on the Mueller investigation, wrote a, wrote a very good book uh, and that is very critical of the investigation that he was a part of and, that, and the key decisions Mueller made. Uh, Andrew actually hired me at the Justice Department, so I'm a little partial, but he's a very, very smart guy and the book is very good. But, uh, you know, the Mueller investigation was supposed to kind of, you know, look into those uh, potential connections. And I think on the one hand, you know, he didn't establish a conspiracy or, you know, maybe did establish sort of more informal quote unquote collusion. But then on the other, this is, this is where Andrew is quite critical. I mean, the Mueller investigation did not fully take advantage of investigative tools that they had to kind of press the investigation as far as they did. Um, They kind of backed off of some sort of really, really important, uh, uh, avenues because they were concerned Mueller and his and other senior folks were concerned about the political blowback. So I think we're never really going to get, I think, the answer that we would want definitively one way or the other until, you know, maybe history, uh, the, the history books are written, you know, years from now. Maybe Mary Trump will do it in civil court because Mueller didn't get at it. Merrick Garland apparently is not that interested just find out the finances, but nobody really turns over records anymore. What about this January 6th commission? They've got some good people dedicated, but these subpoenas are going to be ignored. It's almost like a death penalty case now. Issue a subpoena and then expect delay after delay, and eventually the issue goes away. Am I too cynical, or is there hope that this commission (laughs) will get things done? So I, I think, unfortunately, you know, the Trump uh, administration exposed this major flaw with the system of congressional subpoenas. And, and what they revealed is essentially that you can ignore them. And at a minimum, you can tie the uh, tie Congress up for years in court. And by the time it's all said and done, uh, it you know, the impetus for the subpoena may have lapsed, as in the case of kind of Don McGahn, uh, more or less. And um, Congress is doesn't really do anything to aggressively enforce its subpoena, like, say, you know, making a referral to the Justice Department. And I think in this case, even if they did, I don't think this Justice Department would do anything particularly aggressive. Right. It's my hope. Back to Merrick Garland. Yeah. And And Joe Biden. Correct. Yeah. I I would say the reason why I am quite optimistic we'll get um, more information is because you know, there are things that the commission can do that don't require the um, the compliance of, you know, potentially antagonistic third parties like the former Trump folks, you know, like getting documents from the Trump White House's records with the Biden, which the Biden administration has sort of signaled it's going to be willing to turn over. So we, the commission will hopefully get to see kind of in real time, you know, emails from that day, emails leading up to and after that day. Um, and, you know, as, as you probably know from your time, you know, this, the, a lot can be gleaned from phone records and the commission is, you know, has indicated that it's going to make a pretty aggressive push to gather phone records for 
um, potentially lawmakers and White House officials. So I think that, you know, what we should hope that they do, if not, you know, aggressively pursue subpoenas and the like, is try to pull together as much as they can from the significant reservoirs of information that don't require those people's compliance. Now, that is not to excuse and it's not to suggest that we will get anywhere close to the information that we deserve. Um, but it's better than the status quo. Right. We need to put people on the witness stand. We need direct examination, cross-examination with the records, but that's not going to happen because Merrick Garland is not going to make it happen. So let's try to strike a note of optimism. There are people out there like you and me, and I think that if this battle is going to be won, it's going to come down to uh, people in the media, people who write columns and can expose the truth to the extent they get it out there, and court cases like the one in Denver where the big lie emanated about Dominion. Some truths are going to come out there. So you're a powerful writer. People are commissioning your work. How serious is this threat to democracy, and is it fair to you know, talk about fascism and stuff like that? You know, I myself um, tend to avoid using the word fascism just because it just tends to mean a lot to a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So let me just try to answer it straight, straightforwardly without kind of getting into terms. And what I would say is, like, let's take a look back at the George W. Bush administration and the transition to the Obama administration. Right. At the time, there were questions, as you may recall, about whether or not the Obama administration would do anything concerning the torture program that had been implemented and created under the George W. Bush administration, including with the blessing of lawyers at the DOJ's Office of and Counsel. Maybe, and maybe well, Dick Cheney, Liz Cheney's father, was a little involved. Go ahead. Correct. And, and you know, long story short, nothing of real consequence occurred. The Department of Justice, Justice didn't pursue anyone criminally, and the lawyers in the OLC basically got a slap on the wrist at the end of the day. And, you know, there were people at the time, including like Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who were saying, look, we can't just look away because this is this. These things are just going to embolden uh, these sorts of decisions are just going to embolden people to do something like this again, potentially even worse. And so lo and behold, you know, you fast forward through the Obama administration and we have an administration that did things that to me, I think, were unfathomable, including like the family separation policy, which involved the involvement of a lot of DOJ lawyers, including career people who kind of just, you know, quote unquote, followed orders. And so these risks escalate over time. And so we, I, I think and the magnitude of the harms escalate over time. I mean, that's the history, the story, you know, you know the lesson we learned from our history and, and history of other nations. And so I'm very concerned because I think. You know, looking the other way or, or looking forward and not backward has short term, you know, uh, positive effects for the party in power. But, you know, the next time administration comes around, which may not be that far into the future, and there are people who want to do untoward things or th things that are really morally uh, abhorrent, they're going to say, look, well, look what those guys did and nothing happened. Why not us? You brought up our profession. You are still a lawyer, even though you're making a living as a writer now. Good for you. But what do we do about the lawyers? What about that John Eastman memo? Did you know he was, at the time, employed as a visiting conservative professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder? They, they had to let him go after that. But it's all come out. And, you know, Lauren Boebert, I'm ashamed to say she's from Colorado, too, 
On January 6th, about 20 minutes before they started knocking down the doors, she was giving a screeching speech that was written for her, putting the Eastman plan into effect. Hey, Arizona is messed up because of this and that. And Eastman's plan was for Pence to stop it once they got to Arizona. I mean, my God, the the case, like I said, it's all televised. Yeah, that's that's the Eastman memo. The effort that was that or, uh, Eastman attempted to orchestrate is is truly awful. I, I think, in terms of the lawyers, what I wish we would see is, at a bare minimum, a really, really robust response from disciplinary authorities and relative re- relevant bar authorities. At a bare minimum, and um, you know, professional organizations like the Federalist Society saying, look, you know, these people went too far. We're not going to be affiliated with them. Now, as you know, from having been in the profession for a while, these aren't exactly like earth shattering sanctions. And they very rarely occur in part because in large part, because these professional bodies are self-regulating and they don't like really punishing other lawyers. So I'm very pessimistic (laughs) that they will do that much of anything will happen to these folks, but they deserve significant professional consequences. I think so. And it kind of circles back to Merrick Garland. Oh, you know, it's a good old boys club. And, you know, if John Eastman's in trouble, then what do we do about Ken Paxton and that bullshit lawsuit he put together that a bunch of Republican AGs signed off on and lawyers like Ken Buck in Colorado said that's okay. You know, they don't want to unveil that parade of horribles. How far would it reach? I agree. I mean, I think that, unfortunately, the legal profession um, is very bad about kind of drawing the right lines in the sand and saying, look, just because you can do something, uh, just because you can come up with some legal argument that, that you know, at least has legal kind of words and concepts in it, no matter how frivolous, like, you know, that's what lawyers do. It's not. It shouldn't be. We should expect more of lawyers. And, you know, lawyers have professional obligations, but also moral obligations, right? Obligations to our country to do the right thing. And, you know, some of these things that we've seen, and for instance, in the the Paxton case and in the Eastman memo, I mean, these are so far beyond what I think any competent lawyer would have regarded as kind of reasonable or acceptable things. I'm sure there are many, you know, conservative, far-right conservative lawyers who could defend it, but um, that's not where I am. I mean, that stuff was beyond the pale. You are giving a lot of attention to this situation, and you have the ability to articulate it beautifully with your keyboard. How much attention should Americans give? You just said our democracy is literally literally at stake. And, you know, sometimes I can go overboard with this. Is this a situation that requires full attention or, you know, keep your eye on this? What should the average person do? Look, I think the average person should be as engaged as they can. Uh, uh, it's sort of at least, you know, intellectually in terms of consuming the news, thinking about these issues of voting, right, in local elections and national elections uh, in a way that's consistent with, uh, you know, their values and, and the values they want to see, expressing their views locally through the media, letters to the editor and the like. I mean, whatever tools are available to them, because unfortunately, like the actual levers of influence for the average person, including myself, are not that great. And I'll, I, I would love, I want to leave you folks all on an optimistic note. I myself, I, I'm not actually that optimistic, um, unfortunately. But uh, just because we're now over six months into Garland's tenure, and I think kind of the die has been cast. But I do think this is sort of um, a significant 
issue that requires, you know, that, that warrants as much attention as people can give to it. And I know there's a lot going on in the world, obviously, this, you know, pandemic and whatever is going on in Congress, which is more or less inscrutable on a daily basis. Um, uh, and, and I think, you know, the best us we can all do um, is sort of live our lives and kind of, you know, deal with the things around us, our family, our friends, our neighborhoods, um, and, you know, pay attention to the right things, but also devote as much, you know, time and energy and thought as we can to the issues that matter to our country beyond that. Here's what I say to my clients. I say, look, you're hiring me. You're paying a lot of money. Let me worry about it for you. And I feel better knowing that a smart guy like you, Ankush, is all over this. It seems to me it has, I don't know, maybe 80% of your attention. I'm sure you have another life, but I love it. And I like your hyperlinks. I just like your style of writing. And it would be perfect for an appellate brief. I may need to hire you because you say it, you make your point so firmly, but with grace and with class, and uh, you're beautiful in the way you articulate things. That's why you're in high demand, and I thank you so much for coming into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and having me on. It's it's a real pleasure to talk uh, this stuff over with uh, someone engaged like you and a, and a fellow legal professional. It was a lot of fun. Tell people about your website and where, where they can find out more. I just signed up to get emails from you. Tell everybody. Yeah, so my website is just uh, kadori.com, my last name. It's K-H-A-R-D as in David, O-R-I. And I just try to keep it up to date with the pieces uh, that I publish kind of as they come out and sometimes like, you know, appearances that I do like on, uh, on a podcast like this and other stuff. And I do have like a little, uh, uh, you know, form where you can kind of put in an email and, and get very occasional updates from me. I'm not very good at it. And I try not to spam people's inboxes, but um, from time to time, I, you know, I'll send around an email to folks who might be interested collecting some recent pieces and maybe passing along some learned sort of nuggets here and there. And you can get get a real good look at on Kush too. That's a nice picture with your shirt untucked. I like your website. I, it was brutally honest, just like your pieces. Thanks again for coming in the lounge, and let's stay in touch. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Wow, when you've been practicing law for almost 40 years like me, you learn a thing or two. If you have a legal problem, give me a call, 303-861-2800. At Springer and Steinberg, we do all kinds of law. Call me, 303-861-2800. We will help solve your problem. Thank you. Troubadour Dave Gunders, you've outdone yourself. Hi, Craig. I can't believe it. What a beautiful album you've put together. Do they call them albums anymore? Uh, I do. I love the name. Tell everybody. Troubadour. Gosh, and you open it up. There's a picture of you and your son, Riley. He's licking me. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was that was a beautiful picture. Riley's Black Lab. As people who follow the Troubadour know, he has two daughters, but he has no son. So Riley is his son, and I can't attest to the fact that they love each other. You do have a companion on this song, Slow Down. I love this song. Who is the other singer? I think she's female. 
So this is Rivka Roth, Rothstein. She was um, she's been on another song, Craig, that you've that you've presented on um, on your show. I can't remember which one, but anyway, uh, that's Rivka. Also, Rebecca. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Rivka Rothstein mm-hmm. sings like an angel, mm-hmm. and this song. I didn't know you were a country star. <laughs> well, the star part of it, I, th- I think, is a. Uh, is yet to be, but you know, I I like I like country as I do, you know, so many genres. This song just isn't country; it's pickaninny. Do I have the right word? I don't know. That's because that's, that's I heard it and I started dancing. What's up with that? Uh, it's, it was good to see. I knew the song was a success when you got up and started dancing. Well, this is my favorite theme in all kinds of music. You turn it into a love song, as you do with all your songs, but the message about slowing down. Did you know my favorite Billy Joel song? You should. You went to the concert with me. Do you remember? Well, which one would that have been? Oh, my gosh. I thought we were friends. Tell me. I love the show. I remember the show. I sang it. I sang it when we were at Coors Field watching him. You were along. It's probably. played it. My favorite song. When you sang, it's probably a memory I, I've I've given repressed. you a lot of hints. Do you know your song's name is Slow Down? I'll give you a hint. The words slow down are in this song. Oh, maybe I'm... Uh, it's I'm not a... another singer. It's not slow down. You move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking around the cobblestones. That's Paul Simon. No, that's Feeling Groovy. Okay. That's neither of them. Okay. I don't know who did Feeling Groovy, but Slow <laughs> that's Down Paul with Simon. Billy Joel, Vienna. Oh, Vienna, your Slow favorite. Slow down, you crazy child. Okay. Take the phone off the hook and disappear for a while. You have Disappear in your song, too? I do. I'll tell you, I love this song, and it's especially apropos. Let me tell you why. This song is dedicated to two guys who are a little obsessed with the Trump insurrection and the threat that Trumpism poses to our country, to ourselves. And you know me, I can sometimes get too wrapped up in that. I don't think I don't think so, Craig. I think it deserves all the all of the uh, the ire that 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 it generates in you. Right, but I'd like to be more like you, a little more oblivious sometimes. Because how much attention should this get? What percentage? Well, of media attention? Well, of just uh, average concerned citizen attention. You know, I know the argument for not wanting to give too much oxygen to the big lie and everything. But on the other hand, I think it has to be met with, with, uh, you know, reason and, uh, and good argument. I think the answer is I need to slow down. It can't take my full attention, and it doesn't, because I have a family, I have a law practice, I've got a lot of other things that concern me, like, well, the Broncos went against the Ravens. I think they will. But the bottom line is I'm going to give it some attention because I think of your father. I think of Henry Gunderheimer growing up in Munich, and his family probably paid full attention to what was going on and got them out of there. Well, his, you know, eventually, although his father uh, was was denying the the possibility of uh, of Hitler rising to you know to um, um, that level of power, all the way until you know thirty eight or so. I mean, until until the writing was really on the wall. Right, and I wonder what year we're in. Not to make a Hitler comparison. Slow down, Craig. Slow down. You're 
the line in your song, hey, yeah, you are going to die someday, but it's probably not tomorrow. There are other concerns. I love the wisdom in your beautiful song by Dave Gunders, our troubadour. Before we go, this album is incredible. A lot of the songs have been previewed on my show. I love I love everything about this. I love the photography, the rainbow on the back. You have 17 wonderful songs. How do people acquire this? Uh, I haven't figured that out yet. They can uh, come knocking on my door and I'll give them a free copy. You know what? I think there has to be a link on the CraigSilvermanShow.com. We're going to create it because the Troubadour has a beautiful album named Troubadour. Here's one of the songs on it. Number 10. Slow down. Great advice for these troubled times. Thanks, Troubadour. Thanks, Craig. Went to my doctor to see about things. Had a ringing in my ear, boys. I got irrational fears. I said, Doc, fear I'm dying. Said son, telling you straight, party every night, boy. You're a terrible sight. You're young, you look old, and I ain't lying. Well, there ain't no mystery at all. He said, slow down, look at your life. You're a bundle of nerves, son. Now you're starting to swerve, and you're headed for the wall. You're gonna lose it all, better slow down Slow down, take a deep breath There's a world to see, son Take a walk in the trees Now I've lectured you enough Don't you do that stuff, better slow down
Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, did I tell you we were going to have a great show? But it keeps going. It gets even better because I get to express my feelings. You get to hear again that Peter Boyles concedes my essential point. This is what happened to me on November 16, 2019. They didn't want me to be a talk show host anymore in Denver because I was calling out Donald Trump on Denver Trump Radio. What is Denver Trump Radio? Anybody who advances Trumpism or doesn't call it out. You got to call it out, fellas. You got to pick a side. Trumpism is way wrong. And Peter Boyles, you know, better late than never, but the guy's a wuss. He won't apologize to me. He won't call out Joe Altman, even though he gave Joe Altman that big platform in mid-November. Go to my last show. And he especially won't call out Donald Trump, who is the architect of all this dishonesty, corruption that will lead to the end of America. So if you can figure out it's a big lie, then why don't you call out the big liars, Peter Boyles? But you have admitted certain truths that I told back in November of 2019. And here it is, Peter Boyles in his own words. It's the litmus test to be a talk radio host. You can't, oh, yeah. you can't be a talk show host, particularly on this radio station, without, you know, taking the, the big lie and saying that Donald Trump really did win, but winky, winky. And on his own show, the winky, winky part, which means, you know, it's bull crap. You know, I said so many times with Boyles at remotes where there might be five or six people, but he acted like it was a big crowd. 
Who else do you know like that? Dean Singleton, one of his buddies, calls him a carnival barker. Well, when he saw Trump, he, he saw a reflection of himself, including the birther shit that was racist. It really was. Vincent Carroll called him out. I stayed away from that topic because I worked with the man, but I should have called it out more than I did. Boyles gets further honest, talking about how stupid talk radio has become Denver Trump radio with the callers backing this big live bullcrap. Here's Boyles saying, gosh, you can't be a talk show host without backing the big lie. And who would want to be? Only a dumb person. Who legitimately wants to go in the middle of this? And certainly no one with any brains. No, it'd be nice if somebody would just, I don't know. I just wish, I wish you'd have somebody who'd just call it like it is and just say, they, well, they do, you know, they do. And I then they're believe- done. Speaking of people without any brains, let's talk about Randy Corcoran. My God, I feel bad for his clients. Their lawyer missed an obvious step you have to take before you file a lawsuit of the kind that he did. And Shelly Gilman threw it out and Brian Moss from Channel 4 reported on Corcoran's ineptitude. A Denver judge has dismissed a lawsuit from Denver police officers seeking to overturn the city of Denver's vaccine mandate. The city says all city workers have until tomorrow to be fully vaccinated or face firing. CBS 4's Brian Moss was in the courtroom this morning and joins us live. And uh, Brian, this was a quick ruling. It didn't take very long, Mackenzie. Judge Shelley Gilman ruled that she did not have jurisdiction and she decided uh, that she should dismiss the case, which she did in a very brief court hearing. The officers from the Denver Police Department are now planning to appeal this as early as tomorrow to Denver's Department of Health. This morning's court hearing lasted in total less than a half hour. After it was over, one of the seven Denver police officers who filed for the injunction, Dave Curtis, told me he would retire as of tomorrow after almost 21 years with the department. He said he is not anti-vaccine, but he said he did not like to be told what to do. Tomorrow's your last day. Yes. Why is tomorrow your last day? Because I will not let them violate my constitutional rights and force me to be stuck with a needle with their uh, vaccines. Curtis told me that he is one of five Denver police officers assigned to DIA who are going to resign instead of accepting the vaccine. The attorney representing the officers said he does plan to file that appeal by tomorrow with Denver Department of Health, but he indicated he's not really particularly optimistic about having any level of success there or with this case. Reporting live, I'm Brian Moss covering Colorado first. All right. Thanks for the update, Brian. And to prove there is a God, he makes it known on YouTube because how can it be that there was a camera in the courtroom, one of my favorite courtrooms, 424 on the beloved fourth floor of the city and county building, which is even more beloved after Randy Corcoran got his hat handed to him as Mr. Anti-Mask, Anti-Vax, Big Lie Randy. Well, you can hear it for yourself. Here's Judge Gilman. At the start of the case, Corcoran was not prepared. He spread out like a thousand documents on his desk. You can watch this. I'm going to put it on YouTube. Judge Gilman says, hey, 
I think we got a subject matter problem. You shouldn't be here. You missed a step. City attorney, do you have anything to say? Assistant city attorney Joshua Roberts stands up for less than a minute. You'll hear it. And he says, yeah, this guy missed a necessary step. This guy, Corcoran. So Corcoran is asked to respond, and there was a little problem. He'd lost his notes. Oops. Out of the thousands of documents, he can't find what he wants to say, and he comes to the podium, and it starts like this. I think the first issue we need to address is whether this court has jurisdiction to even address a uh, motion for temporary restraining order. So why don't we start with the issue of whether the court has subject matter jurisdiction. And Your Honor, given that that's their motion to dismiss, should we start with their arguments on that? Sure. And I've read the brief. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, the- <coughs> so, Your Honor, as we noted in the brief, the plaintiffs have the burden of proving subject matter jurisdiction, and the case law is clear, um, particularly State v. Golden's that in the absence of an exhaustion of administrative remedies, the court lacks jurisdiction to even hear a matter, including for injunctive relief. Um, therefore, the city requests that the court find that it lacks subject matter jurisdiction and dismiss this matter prior to even holding a hearing today. Thank you. Mr. Corcoran, your response? Thank you, Oh, geez. Can it get any worse for Corcoran? Yes, it can. When he gets to the podium, he's not feeling good, as self-reported. Your Honor, the case, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I'm actually a little lightheaded. Hoo-wee, what a soundbite. Randy, lightheaded corporate. He's got a pompadour, but he's lightheaded. I'm actually a little lightheaded. Now, how exactly did this all go wrong for you, Randy Corcoran? I mean, other than missing the administrative procedure that you have to do before the case is filed, what else went wrong here? Oh, the dog ate your homework? No, your bucket and your car flipped and your paper got lost? Let's hear it through the magic of YouTube. It's hard to hear, but I think Randy, the lightheaded one, he had his bucket flipped. It would be funny if it's not so serious. If Donald Trump wasn't still out there with allies like Corcoran advancing the big lie on his own, not just the big lie, but the fact that it was the big rig, he tried to rig the election, saying other people cheated. He's the guy who called Brad Rappensberger. Remember that? Now he's trying to get him replaced. It's just obvious as hell. 
Get straight to our top story tonight, and it's a big one. President Trump doubling down on claims of voter fraud in Georgia, and he's heard on the phone asking Georgia's Secretary of State to find votes to overturn our election. The one-hour phone call taking place Saturday, yesterday, and you can hear the president berating Brad Raffensperger and declaring he actually won the election. We have team coverage tonight with three different reporters. Uh, we're going to begin with Hope Ford, who shares more of the back and forth between the two Republicans. I have to find 12,000 votes and I have them times a lot and therefore I won the state. President Trump in an hour long phone call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger asking for votes that would put him above Biden. I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. Uh, you know, we have that in spades already. The president reigniting already debunked claims of voter fraud and machine malfunctions. They're uh, changing the equipment on the uh, on the Dominion machines. And, you know, then that's not legal. And the guy's running again. He was back in Georgia this week. Says he's going to win in 2024. How scary is that? Slow down, Craig. Again, again. We made it great, now we gotta make it great again. That begins with an earth-shattering win in November 2022. And by the way, we never forget 2020, just in case you have any questions. We're not forgetting 2020. Most corrupt election in the history of our country. Most corrupt election in the history of most countries. To be followed by an even more glorious victory in November of 2024. We're going to have a big, big, beautiful victory. If we have a country left in 2024, that's the problem. And now here's a full report on the Sunday Today Show. Just last week about Donald Trump pushing the lie that the Arizona audit proved that he won. The guy will say anything, but come on, people, come on. George Brockler, Heidi Ganahl, any decent Republican, can't you say... No, that's enough. Like Lindsey Graham did the night of January 6th. I'm out. That's it. Where are your scruples? I know with Corcoran, he doesn't have any. Neither does Lauren Boebert. Gosh, I want her investigated. It's 1776, she said on January 6th. You know what she did? She gave this speech that Quentin Young pointed me to. I want you to hear it from start to finish knowing that her constituents, the insurgents, were at the door beating up cops, using American flags to do it. Here is Lauren Boebert on January 6th. Thank you. For what purpose does a gentlewoman from Colorado seek recognition? I rise to support the objection. Uh, the gentlewoman is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Speaker. And to ease everyone's nerve, I want you to all know that I am not here to challenge anyone to a duel like Alexander Hamilton or Aaron Burr. Madam <laughs> Speaker, my primary objection to the counting of the electoral votes of the state of Arizona is based on the Constitution and the direction of state legislatures through state law as spelled out in the following two clauses. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, States in part, and I quote, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors and 
The election clause of the Constitution provides state legislatures with explicit authority to prescribe, and I quote, the times, places, and manners of holding elections, end quote. For more than three decades, Arizona law set by the state legislature has required that voter registration end no later than 29 days before an election. This is clear. It is law. Unless amended by the state legislature, this is the way it needs to be carried out. In Arizona, the deadline for voter registration for the 2020 presidential election was October 5, 2020. Using COVID as a reasoning, Democrats filled a loss, filed a lawsuit to extend this deadline by 18 days. And an injunction was made by an Obama-appointed judge preventing the Arizona Secretary of State from enforcing the constitutional deadline set by the state legislature. As a result of this frivolous partisan lawsuit, 10 extra days were added via judicial fiat to allow voter registration. These 10 days were added after voting had already begun. This is completely indefensible. You cannot change the rules of an election while it is underway and expect the American people to trust it. Now, in this 10-day period, at least 30,000 new voters registered to vote in Arizona. All of these votes are unconstitutional. It does not matter if they voted for President Trump or if they voted for Vice President Biden. They did not register in time for the election. The law states October 5th, either we have laws or we do not. If we allow state election laws as set forth by the state legislature to be ignored and manipulated on the whims partisan lawsuit, unelected bureaucrats, un the House will be in order. If we allow state election laws as set forth by state legislatures to be ignored and manipulated on the whims of partisan lawsuits, unelected bureaucrats, unlawful procedures, and arbitrary rules, then our constitutional republic will cease to exist. The oath that I took this past Sunday to defend and support the Constitution makes it necessary for me to object to this travesty. Otherwise, the laws passed by the legislative branch merely become suggestions to be accepted, rejected, or manipulated by those who did not pass them. Madam Speaker, I have constituents outside this building right now. I promised my voters to be their voice. In this branch of government, which I now serve, it is my separate but equal obligation to weigh in on this election and object. Are we not a government of, by, and for the people? They know that this election is not right, and as their representative, I am sent here to represent them. I will not allow the people to be ignored. Madam Speaker, it is my duty under the U.S. Constitution to object to the counting of the electoral votes of the state of Arizona. The members who stand here today and accept the results of this concentrated, coordinated, partisan effort by Democrats, where every fraudulent vote cancels out the vote of an honest America has sided with the extremist left. The United States Congress needs to make an informed decision, and that starts with this objection. I yield the balance of my time to the gentleman from Florida, Mr. Brian Mass. <laughs> Wow, what a great show. Some of this is kind of personal to me. You know, I did have that show, Corcoran took over. Could see that coming. He's riding the Trump train over anybody who gets in his way, but he's making a fool of himself in the meantime. 
just like he did when he made up that lie that I was wearing that blue suit I wore on Brian Stelter on November 16th. I was dressed like a schlepper. It was mid-November. I did have an old sport coat on and a sweater vest, but not the same outfit. Even though Corcoran and Boyles and Woodland, who turned out to be a neo-Nazi, my producer, they advanced this lie that I had a conspiracy theory with Stelter. But Corcoran further lied because I've done a lot of TV in my life. I really have. Big shows, O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo a million times, back when Rivera Live was a big deal, Larry King Live, countless daytime shows and radio shows. And I get up, I get down. Some of my performances are so-so. Some are better than others, but I had to get up early in the morning right after I got fired because Brian Stelter invited me live on CNN Reliable Sources. I did not know what he was going to ask me, but he asked me stuff And I answered as honestly as I could. And I think I did great. And yet the KNUS guys were upset. What do you mean we won't talk about certain things? What do you mean we have to toe a line? Let's listen to Peter Boyles again before we run my sound. It's the litmus test to be a talk radio host. You You can't be a talk show host, particularly on this radio station, without, you know, taking the the big lie and saying that Donald Trump really did win, but winky, winky. And what did happen to Craig when he spoke out? Who legitimately wants to go in the middle of this? And certainly no one with any brains. No, it'd be nice if somebody would just, I don't know. I just wish, I wish you'd have somebody who'd just call it like it is and just say, well, they do, you know, they do. And then they're done. Anyway, I had this good performance with Brian Stelter. At least I like it. I just watched it, listened to it again. I may post that, but Randy Corbin came on that Sunday night with Matt Dunn and Peter Boyles and the whole Woodland and the rest of the crew to slander me and make up this blue suit lie. But Corbin amongst them said, you know, Silverman on Stelter, he seemed uh, nervous or flustered, which I... I don't think I did. You can watch for yourself. But I know nervous and flustered when I see it. Let's just hear from the lightheaded one again. And please watch him on YouTube. I'm actually a little lightheaded. Anyway, here's what I said to Brian Stelter, and I stand by every word of it. And I guess Peter Boyles does now as well. Give it a listen. And thanks for listening to the show. So what just happened in Denver? Uh, Salem Media's radio station 710 KNUS in Denver has some explaining to do. Uh, On Saturday morning, a prominent Colorado lawyer, Craig Silverman, was hosting his usual Saturday morning show. Then all of a sudden the show stopped. Management cut off the show when he was in the middle of it, and he was essentially canceled. His website for the show has now been removed. Now, he's got a day job. He loves being a lawyer. But this is intriguing because... He says he was cut off for criticizing President Trump. And we know that Salem Media has pressured some other radio hosts to tow a pro-Trump line. That's been the direction of the business. So let's talk about what's going on in right-wing radio and what happens when you try to dissent. Craig Silverman's with me now from Denver. Craig, so you were cut off, you believe, because you were criticizing the president? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. I wrote a column expressing frustration about the things you were just speaking about. The unwillingness or inability of 
Well, about my colleagues would not address this impeachment hearing. They would not address the facts. And I wanted to do that. Three hours every Saturday, I was covering the case. I had other media opportunities. I'm an independent contractor with Salem. And I took those. They were frustrated about that. I was frustrated Mm -hmm. that we couldn't talk about the facts of the impeachment case. And it all came to a head as I was excoriating Donald Trump on my show yesterday. But who was saying that you couldn't talk about the facts of the case, about the impeachment? Well, look, every host makes a decision about the content of their show. When you try to have a discussion, you come into words like sham, hoax, or let's talk about Horowitz, Huber, or Durham. I said that's interesting. You can get plenty of that elsewhere. But on my show, we're going to talk about Ukraine and this impeachment hearing and the facts and what the president is saying that does not add up. The president's on Twitter, of course, saying the impeachment's fake and all of that. There has been this attempt to to ignore the story, I think, among some radio hosts. Look, we're living in a world where in the New York Times, impeachment is a six-column banner headline. And then you listen to the radio, and impeachment is boring and, and unimportant and doesn't matter. It sounds like you were resisting that effort to downplay the importance of this historic event. Absolutely. I thought Taylor and Kent were great. They laid a base. I'm a trial attorney. I'm a former prosecutor. I know how to put on a case. And then Maria Yovanovitch, she inspired me. She was an outstanding witness. But if nobody on radio talks about it, how are the American people going to understand? So what's that about? What do you think that that, that sort of attempt to to put on the earmuffs is all about in, in right wing radio? I think they take their cues from the president, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity. They're the biggest talkers at Salem, Hugh Hewitt, Dennis Prager. I'm surprised they don't want to address the facts of this important and consequential matter. And then the president of the United States has indicated certain words that need to be used. Every week on my show for the five plus years it was on, I give an award for best call of the week. I've given it for about six straight weeks to the president and his perfect call. He keeps wanting (laughs) hosts and American people to say it's a perfect call. And I make fun of that because it wasn't a perfect call. This is not a hoax. It's not a sham. And I'm really disturbed by words that could lead to violence like coup or civil war. Come on, people. Let's just analyze the facts. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.